You're listening to the lucky 13th episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God, despite everyone. It's also about depression, stories, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 13, Beware the Cripple. This week, another first for the Wicked Podcast. Because of the length of a couple of the interviews I did for this episode, I've decided to split it into two parts. This song is about the difficulties inherent in dealing with, speaking with, moving in the same circles with friends and relatives who are still being what they think of as properly Christian, perhaps brethren, in specific ways you no longer are about them reaching out periodically and trying to correct you back to the way they are, and generally judging and disrupting your daily life on occasion, about being treated like, at best, a leper or deserter, and at worst, a traitor to the cause and an infection. People wonder why we don't seem to quickly move on and forget about it all. Harold wonders why I say birth culture instead of church. Well... For many of us, it wasn't just a Sunday morning thing, nor a thing we chose, feeling like if we didn't like it, we could just go somewhere else or nowhere. This was our culture, and we gave up many parts of our childhoods for it. Little things, like television and Christmas, doing anything but church Tuesday and Thursday evenings and all day Sunday, and going over to the houses of potential friends from school who weren't members. Things like that. Also, you may think you're done once you stopped attending, but you're not. These people show up in your life all the time, uptown, where you work, and everywhere you are on social media, often reaching out to try to get you to listen to their view, their story, their narrative, their view of everything. Not me, of course. Brethren people will go to great lengths to avoid talking to me, mostly. And, of course, they'll warn other brethren people off talking to me if they hear that anybody is. I'm an English teacher, and I write things, so I place a great premium on story, on narrative, on how we use it for everything, on how powerful and influential it is. And at my ripe old age, I'm not seeing it as any less powerful for good or for bad. This episode is mostly about story. I'm going to say the word an annoying number of times. Let's think about how a fictional story or narrative starts. The storyteller, who may actually be the narrator or may be a puppet master putting the words in the mouth of the narrator, sets things up, establishes everything, tells what X is going to be equal to, what Y is going to be less than, and what cards are wild in this story. They say, here's what the world is, here are the good guys or people we sympathize with, here are the bad guys or people with whom we don't, here's what's going on, here are the dangers, and here's how very dangerous they truly are, here's what a happy ending would look like. And then they go on to tell you their story about the cowboys, robots, squabbling superheroes, sexy vampires, knights exploring old castle ruins, Holocaust survivors starting a bakery in Manhattan, Alzheimer patients forgetting their children, or antebellum African slaves running northward toward freedom. But that's not just for fictional stories, with the politicians 
government policies, foreign and domestic, related to COVID or China or Russia or Jeffrey Epstein, suddenly we can't help but notice how much people do exactly the same thing in real life. They set things up. They establish things. They say, here's what the world is. Here are the good guys or people we sympathize with. Here are the bad guys or people with whom we don't. Here's what's going on. Here are the dangers, and here's how very dangerous they truly are, and here's what a happy ending would look like. And they go on to tell you their story about the real, actual things going on, having defined what all of it is and what all of it means and what roles everybody has. That's powerful. Try to bring one Smurf into Narnia, and people are likely to scoff or otherwise simply not accept it. Because once you've set up Narnia, we know that Smurfs don't go in that story. I hate Narnia. So when someone is going on and on about Smurfs or Jedi, our brain rejects what they're saying because it doesn't harmonize properly with the story we're working on. There aren't robots in ancient Rome. There aren't Martians in Middle-earth. So if people talk about them, we just discount that as nonsense. It doesn't compute. It doesn't fit our story. During COVID, some people were the all-COVID, all-the-time channel, whether for or against measures. And so if you said anything to them, you'd be surprised to hear them somehow try to make it sound like what they said about COVID next was a logical response to the entirely non-COVID-related comment you had just made. With others, it's the environment, or men, or white people, or the prime minister, or other government figure, or food, or mindfulness, or Christianity, or anarchism, or Satanism, or atheism, or maybe their ex. A story gives you the idea that you know pretty much everything important for sure. It's depressing in that I don't know anymore, and it's something that I miss. Right. The certainty of it. Chris and I have talked a lot about how empty and awful it feels to realize that you didn't actually know everything after all, for sure. But a story makes you think you do. You just know. You know what the world is, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, what the dangers are, and what a happy ending would look like. And you grow up with the unthinking expectation of always knowing anything very important. And it feels great. There's a lot of peace in it. Until you see... Not that there's no real world, not that no one ever acts like a good or a bad person helping or hurting, not that there are no dangers or that everything's a danger or that there are no happy endings or that happy endings are possible for everyone always, but that your story about all of that is too simple. And you've seen this, that your story is now going to have to be not a hot pizza delivered in a box to your place anymore with no work required but an ongoing project or work you have to do yourself for the rest of your life. And faced with all that lifelong work, many people who were pleased to grow up knowing, eating what was served to them Sundays, are not willing to live the rest of their lives doing the work, planting and growing the green peppers and tomatoes, milking the cows and making the cheese, and simply hoping and thinking and believing things might be working out. So they embrace atheism or some other dogmatic means of feeling that they know now for real this time. They still know, right? Angel tried this upon leaving the pedophile cult she was born and raised in. The way that my schooling was set up, I was not allowed to discover anything new when it came to spirituality and when it came to schooling. I was only allowed to, they taught me two subjects, math and English, up mm -hmm. until fifth grade level. And then they were like, you don't need to know anything. You're a woman. You just need to know how to do child care. Mm -hmm. So after that, there was no new information had. And then when I left, 
I took in no new information until I realized that there was a possibility that I could be proud of myself. And when I had that thought, I could actually be a person that I could be proud to be. And I started thinking, what would that look like? Then I started to do the build of where are my information gaps? And that's when I started to learn about the things that I wanted to learn about. And then that's when like natural curiosity kicks back in because Mm -hmm. it had been cut off aggressively. Yeah. And it starts to kick back in. And I just started to give myself permission to find out anything I wanted about anything that I wanted with no shame. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, there's so much shame around not knowing, like I should know my times tables. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't anymore. So, well, that's my thing is at first I was like, I need to now go. And I did, I bought a textbook because I was like, I need to know my times tables. And then it was like, you know what? I actually don't. I have a, no. I have an iPhone. It'll do that for me. Yeah. But what I do need to do is work through the shame of feeling like I'm a lesser person and cannot be proud of myself because I don't know what 17 times, you know, 14 is within the first two seconds. Right. And so I think it becomes a thing of having to work through your own blockages. It has nothing to do with whether or not you have information. It has to do with whether or not you feel shame around that information. And I think it's the same for spirituality. Um, because for me, I threw the baby out with the bathwater. I was like, God's clearly a piece of shit, isn't he? And so obviously there's nothing spiritual and blah, blah, blah. But it's again, that thing where I had no new information. And then when I was willing to look at the shame, that's when I started taking in new information of like, can I be proud of myself if I I'm saying that there is no God and there's nothing out there. And then you look at the evidence and I'm like, "Mm, I can't be arrogant enough to look at the world and everything that has happened and say there's nothing else past humanity. I can't say that. And so for me, it was like, all right, in order to be proud of myself, I do need to acknowledge some sort of higher power, uh, in which case, what is a higher power that I can communicate with that I would be proud of myself for having? And so what I have now is like, I think that the universe, it has an intelligence and I think that I don't understand it, but I'm learning to communicate with it Mm -hmm. in a very loving way. And what that meant was that I had to undo all of my conditioning for how God viewed me and how I viewed God and how I thought God viewed me and what that relationship was like. All of that was trash and all of that needed to be completely dismantled and let go of in order for me to be someone who I'm proud of with my own brand of spirituality. So it's like your own brand of knowledge, your own brand of autonomy and spirituality. For me, it stemmed from the question, am I someone that I can be proud of? I'm assuming like most of us, you were raised that the very word pride, it was like one of the worst things that you could be. A hundred percent. This is an exceedingly serious matter. It is a matter of eternal life or being dead forevermore. And it's coming upon us. And as you think about your position, you better ask yourself, really, what am I trusting that it can't happen? That Christ is coming as a thief in the night. What is your authority? Are you listening to the whole Bible? We need to know the time. Otherwise, how can we be obedient to Ezekiel 33, which tells us that we have to tell the world, warn the world, that Judgment Day is coming. Uh, We have to be able to tell them when it is coming, and now we know through the very day. 
In 2010, when Harold Camping preached online that the rapture was absolutely going to occur for sure on May 21, 2011, his slogan was, Save the Date, We Can Know. He had a website called WeCanKnow.com. This web address was painted on billboards and a fleet of vehicles all over America, and people who wanted to know how the story ended flocked to him. Most Christians thought camping was a wingnut. Many Christians don't believe in the rapture to begin with, and most who do believe human beings don't get to know when it will be, based on the Bible verse, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But some Christians wanted to know, said they could know, said they did know. They were excited to know. It made them feel great. They said how simple it was, how clear in Scripture, how clear in the world if you watched the news. They marveled at how stupid and blind the rest of the world was, particularly Christians they'd failed to convince of the whole May 21st story. They confidently sold homes, quit jobs, ended relationships, and gave away cars and so on because of the story they were following. It was all they could talk about with you, in person or online. Bethany's uncle was really into it. We got pretty tired of listening to him on Facebook. And as May 21st, June 21st, July 21st, and August 21st, 2011 rolled by, these people had a real crisis, a story breakdown. At first, they tried to edit their story, to alter the date or say that in some way the Lord kind of had come on May 21st, 2011, only you couldn't tell. And then Harold Camping died. Chris and I didn't believe the May 21st thing specifically, but we identify with the feeling that you absolutely know the story and then have unfolding reality fail to fit it. To realize the harsh reality that as a Christian, as a human being, you believe rather than know. You think you might know, and that's as good as it gets for you. That's it. That's spiritual humility. And it feels humbling. It's not as sexy and fun and cool as being an insider with secret knowledge. But it's real. Angel is a great proponent of spiritual humility. I've never been to school a day in my life. And for me, I'm like, I trust that I will get the information that I need in order to state any sort of opinion or whatever it is, having done research. And if I haven't done the research, I don't need to state an opinion. I can be like, I don't know. Chris tells me the wecanknow.com domain is for sale now for $10,000 American. My sister Debbie remembers the resistance to us trying to work anything out growing up. And we all got that. We were all at a phase where we were trying to figure out what we were going to believe and who we were going to be and who we were, who we were becoming. And all of us were treated as stop stop all of that and just do what we're telling you to do. Yeah, I remember um, Grace Wills telling me, to, well, if you want to get back into, um, you know, at the Lord's table, if you want to be back in, um, just put a hat on your head and sit in the back like a good girl. I promise mm -hmm. you, if you just do that, you'll get in. And she was mm -hmm. begging me and she was crying. They wanted and you I was back saying, and they I didn't can't. want me back. So I, I was trying to get back in and they were like, no, you are never getting back in. I wasn't very are. dangerous. You weren't very dangerous. No, I was benign. Was I was the, a benign tumor. Well, people liked having you around. And uh, as long as you were silent with your head covered, like a canary cage. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know that they actually liked having me around because I don't think they knew who I was and neither did I. Well, Evan talks about the stats being very grim as far as like the future of churches and having any members left at all. And so a lot of times it doesn't really matter who you are. They just want to try to retain some people. 
And before we dismiss the Herald's camping thing as nutjob Christian nonsense, we need to remember Paul McCartney is dead, the missing link Piltdown Man, the Y2K panic, the so-called hoax, the grievance studies affair, Jussie Smollett, and any number of other things that large groups of people just knew, but eventually had to learn simply weren't reality. The attacks. It's like, you know, at first it was a thing of like, listen, if I tell the truth, then that's it, because it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Then it became a thing of like, oh, how can you doubt that? Like, how do you, how do you not believe that? It's the truth. And then it became a thing of like, oh, it's not necessarily that you don't believe that this is the truth. You don't even want to see the truth. There's a reason we have the word hoax and that everyone knows what it means. To make us believe and live according to a story that isn't real, just give us a story we like, one that spells an end to questions. We all think we're viewing the world through the facts, the evidence, reality, the science. But what I've found is that if their narratives are very different at all, two people kind of can't talk to and hear each other much at all. And they might very well have a very persuasive story telling them that the person they're trying to talk to, even if it's their wife, father, daughter, or cousin, is the enemy or one of his servants, an antagonist figure. Sometimes people call this the lens through which they're viewing the world. I'm looking at it as a story. They're telling themselves and slotting everything and everyone into it. We all do this, so I don't think the solution is to stop telling one story to oneself and others, but to broaden it so it's not a one-note symphony, not a bad soap opera, PSA, or after-school special. And it's not just individual people, of course, who are united by a narrative that screens out facts that don't help it. It's not even just churches. It's corporations, institutions of learning, and the departments in them. It's all human groups, pretending to be open to all the facts, but actually serving a very narrow story, and not registering or actually stamping out any sharing of any facts at all that may be very real established things, but which complicate the story like leprechauns in The Lion King would. Angel remembers the members of her cult being told by their cult leader that everything was wonderful in the abusive sex cult that was scarring all of them for life. We Mm -hmm. had this whole thing called standing in the gap. And the analogy that we got was from our leader who he would get drunk and ramble and his secretary would take them down and this would be the propaganda that we would read. Author Jonathan Haidt, talking about cancel culture, says that it's not like it looks about people getting fired or excommunicated from the group and shunned as a pariah for one time saying one thing that was racist or homophobic or anti-vax. It's not for breaking some one specific certain rule, not any more than I was excommunicated, church cancel, for breaking some single rule. What it actually is, Haidt argues, is people bucking or questioning whatever policy, procedure, plan, or story is being served up and served by their boss. You don't get to do that, Haidt argues. The ensuing allegations of istisms are just a pretext. The fact is, you are questioning the narrative, questioning the direction and assumptions and workability of what's being currently pursued by the group blindly. In the kingdom of the blind, a one-eyed man gets killed. We're telling research scientists, experts in the fields of politics, psychology, economics, medicine, and human resources 
what kind of facts, what reality we expect them to find in advance. We need them serving the story we're telling. They work for us. So we give them two choices, either make it so or pack your things and go. And I think I learned simultaneously in the Brethren and at Norton Networks, the globe-spanning tech giant of the time poised to monopolize what was becoming worldwide cell phone service and internet. What I learned there was that the biggest sacred cow to shoot at is a narrative that things are working wonderfully, that everything's going very well and getting better all the time, that we're doing so well, paying for the rights to use songs by the Beatles in our ads is something we can easily afford. Just another way Nortel Networks puts the new high-performance internet to work for you. <laughs> Come together! <laughs> look on their faces. Nortel Networks. Over me! That we can afford to buy out every internet startup we can find anywhere, whether that's making us any actual money back or not. That we can do all of these things and not go out of business. These were the guys, remember, who, skeptical of what was rapidly becoming the Internet not too many years earlier, had thought they could casually make their own knockoff product called the infrastructure that people would happily use instead of the Internet. These are very special places, filled with the trumpeting of improbably bold plans. But claim you've found a problem, especially one not solved by and maybe even caused by what's currently going on, how we currently do things, and that's it for you. Nortel tried something very interesting on their way down a few years after laying me off with over 60% of their employees worldwide. They reported, in the middle of complete financial ruin, a sudden inexplicable return to financial strength. This meant they could then increase stock prices and sell lots of pricey stock and give their remaining management staff huge bonuses. Any who questioned the success story got gotten rid of fast. Thing is, it was only a story a very made-up story the paint hadn't even dried on yet. And they got caught. Because that story made no sense. It was based on the optimistic plan that people would simply believe whatever optimistic story they were told, or that at the very least, Nortel would get away with having told it. Well, the government intervened. All was revealed as completely fraudulent, and Nortel got away with everything and lived wealthily ever after. Quite a story. I guess the moral of it is that blindness and lies win. Like me, Johan has sat in many corporate and committee meetings with more going on than immediately meets the eye or is written in an agenda anywhere. Unsurprisingly, Johan mostly works on committees which deal in charity work and community improvement. He is, after all, a lifelong servant of good. Johan speaks particularly about people who shut down other people's sensible input at meetings their sharing of inconvenient facts or alternate methods that might well work, better, or at all. He also speaks from the point of view of someone trying to have a meeting and continually tripping over trivial, time-wasting objections. Johan's not a proponent of kicking people out of meetings or shutting them down either. I've sat on a lot of committees, so I've met that person a lot of times. Um, and what are my experiences with them? I... I don't have any specific stories to share, um, only to say that I think that in the moment it's easy to feel a lot of frustration, um, but I also understand that um, usually those kind of reactions from people um, 
usually stem from either um, uncertainty or discomfort with the with the topic of conversation at hand, um, or just a need to to sort of feel a sense of control. Um, it's very easy to feel out of control in those kind of group settings, and it's very easy to feel anxious. And I think that um, taking charge of something, even even simply by raising objections and by um, sort of stonewalling conversation and, and discussion and work is is a way a, a way of taking some small amount of control back some sort of some sort of power um, and I don't think it's necessarily malicious in fact I would say it rarely is I mean we're never the villains of our own story are we um, and I'm not even sure that it's always uh, intentional um, in fact I, I would imagine often it isn't um, but I think it's just people need to feel like they have a sense of control and, and losing that control and giving it into it, especially in something like a meeting, which is very public, uh, can be incredibly intimidating, can be really difficult for people. Um, and it, uh, so in the moment, yeah, it annoys the heck out of me. Um, and I try not to be that person myself. I hope that I'm not. But I, I, I think that usually it comes down to something that that person needs. And, um, if you can, in, when you're leading a meeting, um, you need to understand what that person needs going into the meeting. What was that about hats again? Oh, uh, people aren't wearing enough. Is this true? Certainly. The hat sales have increased, but not peri-pursuers. Our research initiatives... Wouldn't enough? Enough for what purpose? Can I just ask with reference to your second point? When you say souls don't develop because people become distracted... Has anyone noticed that building there before? Having grown up on Star Trek The Next Generation, Johan is a great believer in letting people with opinions quite alien to his own share their side of things to see if everyone can eventually end up on the same page. Um, when I chair meetings, it's really important to me uh, that I know right at the very beginning what I want the outcome of that meeting to be. It's like we'll put together an agenda, we'll have certain decisions that need to be made, um, and I start the meeting knowing what those decisions are going to be because I decide, right? I decide what I want. And the goal of the meeting for me as a chair then becomes getting the rest of the the committee sort of on board with those decisions. And to do that, it, I need to understand the people that I'm meeting with. So I need to know them. I need to address their concerns. And very often I'll do that. So when I chair meetings, something that I do often is I will meet with someone privately beforehand, even if it's just a conversation in the hall to say, Hey, have you looked at the agenda? Have you thought about this item? What do you think? And even though I go into those meetings knowing what I want the outcome to be, that, that doesn't mean that that outcome always happens. And that doesn't mean that I always want that outcome to happen in the end. I mean, that's why we have meetings is so that we can all benefit from each other collectively. So sometimes, um, I'm, I, my opinion will change or my mind will change or my perspective will change in a meeting. That's what meeting, that's what's great about them, right? That's why we do them. Um, but it's good to have that decision as a backup to say, well, if, you know, 
if nothing else, this is what should happen. And, and in preparing for that outcome, I like to talk to people and know, so I know what the needs are of the people going into that meeting in advance so that we can be prepared to address them together. I think that a little bit of groundwork, a good agenda, and having an outcome in mind as a chair uh, can go a long way to making meetings uh, a lot more useful for everyone and making sure that everybody in that meeting feels heard, which is so incredibly important. Um, I think as a chair, your job isn't to make those decisions in the end, really. The job is to is to make sure that everybody feels heard. Um, deciding what you want the outcome to be is as much an exercise that's useful for the chair as it is for everybody else in that meeting. It's thinking about what your own perspective is and what you want to share. So that's that's how I sort of deal with people who want to object. So I think about who's going to object and why and, and why are they objecting and what can I do. And, I, and the more prep you can do in advance, the I find the smoother the meetings go. I note Johan's unprompted use of the word story in thinking about why some people just seem to be stamping on truth and sensible comments coming from others during meetings. Ben points out that the cut off the rebellious brethren person so he'll feel ashamed and soon come back so we can welcome him into the fold again strategy doesn't seem to work very often, assuming they want it to to begin with. So that's the act I'd love for that group of institutional churches to change check in with the people you kicked out show you're actually interested otherwise you're never going to get them back and how many success stories do they have of this theory that you cut somebody off they're going to be so miserable they're going to repent and come back to this wonderful christian body is there anybody that that's been successful for i don't think so no so that's not me because the same thing with me that um i had to chase them like I don't think I was excommunicated as an attempt to get me on the same page as them so they could let me back in. Quite the opposite. I told Ben and Ed about why I think this. They met with me once and basically told me that they would never meet with me again. Um, you know, I tried again like years later and they refused. And what's astounding to me is when you tell people who are happy brethren, that this goes on, they just say, well, that can't be true. Like, I, I couldn't be part of a group that behaved that way. But that is what they do. And I, I think that they get rid of people permanently just because they don't know how to handle a situation. Yeah. If there was literal love, there's one thing the church could have done better. And I'd love to talk about this. Mm-hmm. There's one thing that they could prove that they actually do love is actually just check in. If they took the time to actually say, hey, we're just wondering if you want to repent. It's been mm-hmm. six months. You're yeah. still alive. You know that we're here. Here's the great things you're missing out in our church. We'd love to have you back, but you got to repent. That would show me that they actually love. And they do miss me. They do think it's not good. I'm in this. But they mm-hmm. have this twisted demonic theology that says we cut somebody off and never speak to them again. That's exactly what Satan loves. Ben's husband, Ed, relates how his adoptive mother through whom he found his way to brethrenism, a lifelong missionary, has had her life and life's work completely demolished, all for having an adopted son who doesn't seem to tell the story they want told. So they wanted her to retire from being a missionary. Yeah, actually, she's with us now. She's she's retired now, but she decided to stay in Colombia. Yeah, the elders definitely uh, asked her to not speak to me anymore. 
and and but then I feel like she's struggling with the 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 idea about cut me out because she have been calling me. Mm-hmm. There were two months and we stopped talking because there was a call when she was you know quite judging. <laughs> yeah. And but then she she's back she's back she have been calling talking and you know even talking to them. So, but yeah, I don't think she's fully involved in the the mission work there anymore. And they say, you know, you can you can save your testimony as a missionary. You just stop talking to him because at the beginning she wanted to come to Canada, and but then they stopped her to do that. To me, this is too much yeah. of this, and this is this is the really staggering part: is that yes, they'll treat you badly. But they'll also take not just your adoptive mom, but she's also this lifelong valued missionary and yeah. interfere with her preaching the gospel to yeah. people because her adoptive son is gay and she won't stop talking to him. To me, that's insane. Even even they decide to, they try to pursue her to say, she's not my mom. Like telling, telling her, well, you can decide to be his mother or not. I don't understand that. How old were you when she adopted you? I met I met her when when I was five. I, I came from a very very bad home, you know, with so many problems with my dad. And she was like an angel. She was like having my mother. You know, she paid for my studies. She she had been very very helpful in my in my life. You know, I am who I am because of her. And so maybe 20 years or more of this relationship oh, and, they, and they just oh, yeah. want, and they just yeah. want her to give it up because that they think you're a sinner and therefore she needs yeah. to side with them. Yeah. It's so evil the way they think to manipulate people. They even talk about me being manipulating her, but then they were the ones manipulated. Mm-hmm. People accuse people of what they're doing to try to yeah. disguise <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that, I think that's horrible. And so I'm glad that, she, that she's talking to you because I would hate to think that. And, and how old is she now, roughly? She is 81. She's so 81. An 81 year old woman and, and people are trying to make her cut off all ties to her son. And she wanted yeah. to move with you to Canada and she has yeah. roots in British Columbia and I know COVID and everything, but they're interfering with this woman's life. Yeah. And, and actually I feel like she's unhappy there. Even when she is, you know, at some point she's, she's, she likes Colombia. But then moving back to Canada was her idea and was our idea. Mm-hmm. But then when they found out and I was like, you know, giving her this advice because I thought, mom, you, you can stay here because I'm moving with Ben. And, and, and she, was, she agreed with that decision. Mm-hmm. We were packing. But these people show up saying, no, he's manipulating you. And you will win your testimony as a missionary for 40 years because you followed him. I can't believe it. Yeah. Very, very evil way to use the Bible. To hurt people. To, to promote their own agenda. Well, they, they talk about me promoting my own agenda. But they want to that. Yeah. When we came out, we did not give it an agenda. Yeah. We did not receive our agenda. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I was, and we were trying to help her to move out because my uncle in BC was offering to move. They live in a in a you know in a property, a million dollars 
property in BC and, and he wanted her to move back to Canada and stay with him. And poor thing had been in Colombia, isolated, staying alone in an apartment. And you know, it's awful. It's awful the way they, and she spent Christmas, I think two Christmas, I think one, one when I was there oh, yeah, one and two, the yeah. other one alone without anybody around. Yeah. They said they would take care of her. But they, they left her alone in yeah. an apartment. Nobody knew COVID was happening, but the Holy Spirit was telling her and her son to move to Canada. Yeah. And she listened to a man instead and got separated and isolated for a year and a half. Yeah. That's, again, fruit. You know, she's living in a fourth floor, no, no elevator, and she's suffering now with her legs. And, you know, like, it's very unhappy life. It's very, very unhappy life. You know? It was a terrible thing to hear about. Um, I, I had intended to ask that before. I was almost afraid to ask because of all the things about your story, uh, the, the hateful letters and um, yeah. the sort of, and it's, it's not even limited to one continent, let alone one country where there, <laughs> yeah. there's these angry letters treating both of you as frauds with this huge scandal. They're acting like, they're acting exactly the same as like a mega church with some prostitution scandal when in fact you guys had a committed relationship and have gotten married. It's not about promiscuity or, or prostitution or something like that at all. It's, it's actually people following their hearts. And with all of this, it, for some reason, it's, it's the splitting up of the relationship with your mother that really, that made me mad. I knew an old guy and what he would, his name was Charlie and what he would always ask is where is their fear of the throne of God? Um, he was saying like they're, claim, they're claiming to be Christians. And you can maybe say that they've made a mistake about their doctrine or they're not very good at obeying the Bible, but he kind of cut deeper and said like, aren't they afraid to, to be, treat God's children this way? Like if they believe in God as they claim they do, why aren't they scared? It's because so they should, they should be scared. Kim also has thoughts on how groups like ours often work to keep natural relationships broken. You, you mentioned like your mom would want someone to go speak with you. And that seems to be a universal experience. And I have a whole song about just that, about where someone said, basically says, like, can, can I talk to you? And they're going to yeah. try to uh, adjust you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And we all have that. We oh, all know yeah. about that. Yeah, exactly. You just, I just remember being like, hey, I thought you were my friend. Like, yeah. what are you doing? No, I, now I just don't respect you. You know, like mm -hmm. that was always kind of my attitude. It's like, well, I thought, you know, we had something going on here. I thought, you know, maybe I could trust you. But obviously that's that's not the case, you know. <laughs> and this happened with family, of course, in my case. Not, not as dramatically at first, but like I had a bunch of cousins and stuff. And, you know, the first time I went to the movies when right. people found out that was a thing. It wasn't like a tattoo or something. I went and saw a Star Trek movie. And yeah, that was a thing. And actually from, from the, from the point at which I stopped hiding, I didn't never hid because that was my rule. My rule was yeah. I don't think it's wrong to drink beer, but I feel guilty because I was programmed to. I'm going to wait yeah. until that wears off and then I'm going to drink a beer. And I did. I waited. Okay. Yeah. And I did it. So that's not, that's not your style. You wait till you're 17, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and you also had some relatives that weren't brethren, which I, that had to help. Yeah, it that, did help. And yeah, my I have two aunts and my mom's side that are gay, and 
one of them lived in Halifax or like in Dartmouth. So just like close to me mm-hmm. at the time. So that was like, I always got to see her, you know, every once in a while. And yep. when my sister first moved out here, um, she lived with her too. Like she was, she's been a pretty big, um, yeah, just a solid, solid person in our lives. And yeah, having those people, but that was like hard because those relationships had to be rebuilt, you know, after we left all those things, because we were not like supposed to hang out with them or be close to them. Or, you know, I think one of the reasons my dad just never talked to Amy again is because she moved in with like my aunt and he was like, Oh, well, no, not never speak to her again. It was like this excuse to just like cut her out. So it was like, yeah, building like these relationships back and being like, not with my aunt Helen, but with like a lot of my other aunts and uncles being like, yeah, it really sucked that we weren't allowed to be close when we were younger. I wanted to be closer to you or I knew you loved me, but I always felt like there was something between us. And, you know, it was just this like religion, this thing where like, oh, my parents didn't want us to get close to them. They didn't want us to like really see that if they were having like a good life or like, you know, they always wanted to be this divide. And I think like bridging that gap now as adults is like hard and like wonderful and nice, but also like really hard. And like, it's hard to think of all the wasted time, you know? Absolutely. Of course, I didn't get laid off from Nortel Networks because I noticed at the time from grunt worker level that their business plan was optimism and nothing much else besides. I got laid off because they were going out of business for not having a better business plan, for not operating more cautiously, informedly, and wisely. But we all got to watch that titanic corporate ship slowly sink, throwing parties celebrating their certain future victories on the foredeck all the while. The band played on soundtrack to the story they never let go of until they were done. I spoke with Ruth, raised in our group, about how our groups tell us stories to make us view everyone around us as other, even if they're relatives. Well, the thing about cults is that they isolate people, don't they? Like, that's mm-hmm. the, that's almost like what defines a cult. Because plenty of people believe plenty of weird shit, and that isn't what makes them a cult. No. I think what makes a cult is being isolated from being able to mingle with people who think differently or who have different perspectives, being discouraged from forming relationships with people outside, even family members, having this feeling that we had to almost like withdraw our affections from family members. Like this, this is really hard to talk about, but like how we would have to see like our beloved grandparents as other like these are our grandparents our flesh and blood and we have to see them as other we we love them of course but we can't have fellowship with them the way we would for me i think that's what made us cultish was the isolation i totally agree and i don't know a very clear memory from childhood that i think is a particularly odd thing that happened Uh, Mm -hmm. my mom was raised by a single mom who wasn't a brethren person and mm-hmm. had a mental breakdown and Plymouth Brethren people adopted my mom. So my mom was adopted into the oh. Brethren when she was kind of 12. So she had already seen Elvis Presley on TV and, and screamed with the other girls at him. She had worn jeans with like white rubber boots, like all the fashionable girls were wearing right. in Montreal, right. Canada. She had boys that were interested in her. And all of a sudden she had to get Brethren. 
And so she did. One of the things that was odd is so I basically, I had her mom who lived with us. So mm-hmm. I had a, a maternal grandmother who lived with us and never met mm-hmm. my maternal grandfather. On my dad's wow. side, I had both grandparents, but mm-hmm. I also had these step grandparents and they were in the meeting and we weren't mm-hmm. necessarily close, but they were, they were, they were in the meeting. And when I was a little kid, they acted as step grandparents and they would occasionally give me gifts. So the yeah. first book that I can remember reading myself without help from start to finish was mm-hmm. the Bobsy Twins and the Mystery of the Seashore. I think it was called or the Secret of the I Seashore. I love that book. Yes, I had it growing up as well. And what happened is they fell afoul of some stuff and they got put under discipline. So we were not allowed to eat with them from that point on. And one thing I recall is we were very squeamish about Christmas, of course. Oh my goodness, were we ever? We'll talk about that in a sec, but we're we're terrified of Christmas because of it not being, uh, of it being too, too, it was pagan, it was too Catholic, it was all those things. So I always got Christmas gifts, but they were never in wrapping paper. The wrapping paper had snow or snowmen or yeah. or things, but certainly not green trees, even if they weren't decorated. Certainly not Santa. There's no Merry Christmas. We didn't say Merry Christmas. We None of that was right. allowed. At school, of course, we'd sing Christmas things, and school had more, much more religious ones than we do now. But oh, right, I, right, I right. have a really clear memory of not being allowed to eat with my step-grandparents anymore. Right. So we didn't really see them anymore. And they didn't live, they just lived, you know, next town over. And they dropped off Christmas gifts for us yes. and and they weren't allowed to come in. So they kind of stood out in the front and, mm-hmm. and our parents awkwardly accepted these Christmas gifts mm-hmm. and we were going to get our non-Christmas gifts on non-Christmas day, just like usual with no Christmas tree and no Christmas lights. Nothing. But I remember that these presents were never opened. I, I looked at mm-hmm. them as a little child wondering what was in them. And I, I don't know to this day what was in them because I wasn't allowed to open them because they were from the people that were under discipline. Right, right. Absolutely. That's exactly how strict it was. It depended on your family. So your family and my family were pretty strict. And a lot of families weren't at all strict. Have you noticed that families like yours and mine who were extremely strict, we were the, our families were the ones who were trying to earn brethren points. I guess you could say we were trying to fit in, trying desperately to fit in. So my parents were trying to go above and beyond with so many things because they wanted to be accepted in the brethren. And I think that's why they were so strict. Now, if you were already accepted, you were in a a place of favor. I feel like you might not have had to be quite so strict because it wasn't about trying to get status. Does that make any sense? That makes perfect sense because what, what you're really talking about there is if you had the right last name, you're kind of already it. And so if you screwed up a little bit, people wouldn't like it, but right. yeah, you screwed up a little bit and watch it. There's you know. grace. Yeah. Whereas it, like my family were, were an up and comer. We we're trying to get established. My dad was trying to become someone who spoke at meeting. So yeah, my we, dad we, too. We, and, and nobody really told him that you don't get to do that. So right. you know, it was never going to work. And right, he, right. he tried and he did more and more and more and more until they eventually smacked him down because he didn't get the memo. He certainly right. couldn't be criticized on the Bible knowledge or the number of rules that we followed. None of that could he be criticized mm-hmm. on. He could be criticized right. on not getting the memo about working with other people and being socially adept and knowing what to turn a blind eye to and, and et cetera. Right. You'd be tempted to say, 
the family that was strictest with the rules has the most screwed up kids and the family with the least application of brethren or Jehovah's witness or Mormon rules has the most normal kids. And that's not what I found. Um, it seems to be how much love is in the home. Very so, much. So that if you have very strict Jehovah's witness, Mormon or Plymouth brethren parents, and they mm-hmm. make you follow all these rules but but the house is nice. You feel mm-hmm. wanted and there's love right. there and there's forgiveness and you're taught about joy and you're taught about relationship and you're taught about compassion and forgiveness right. and mercy. It seems to be okay to have such a strict home. You can survive that. I, I know some people who've spoken to me on the podcast who are technically mm-hmm. raised Jehovah's Witness or technically raised Mormon or Plymouth Brethren, but the mm-hmm. parents were neglectful. Maybe that in some cases the parents had substance abuse problems or it was a single mom trying to make the kid Jehovah's Witness or something, and they just, they weren't there for the kids. Those kids were every bit as messed up as the strict kids because there's, there's different kinds of, of love. Like in my case, my parents certainly loved me, but our our home, our home had, I would say it was sterile in terms of joy and love. And like, it was a very dour place that was very, Everyone was like insulated and, and it was, it was kind of like that. It wasn't a place that was filled with, with life and love. I really big the, time the, lo- the love was like, we knew it was implied, like, right. you know, and it was understood, it was understood, but it wasn't expressed very much. You just had to sort of know that it was there. And ultimately when things went bad, you're on your own. Everyone was on their own. Um, and there's those homes where no one even knew, like, I know people who were raised Jehovah's witness and in, in theory, probably stricter rules than we ever saw parents didn't know where they were all day long and so they were breaking all the rules and they would become alcoholics and things and they just had no guidance that that seems to be just as bad like in my case right i was malnourished i guess emotionally um yes there's it's neglect in a certain way and i don't blame my parents because they were raised so much worse than me that they're this giant upgrade on what their home lives were so they're this giant upgrade doing their best and they come to to us and they don't know how to raise kids like this and they didn't have it modeled right. for them. So they end up with, they didn't know things. And there were other homes in the meeting where, like for instance, there were homes that on paper were, were the most important homes in the assembly. Yet yes. we kind of knew that there was a TV in the basement somewhere. And mm-hmm. the rules about the TV might be very interesting. It might be that there's absolutely no television except for hockey during playoff season. Right. Or absolutely no TV except the Olympics is on. Um, a lot, sports always got this special thing. And, sports you know, did. I'm not sure why. Cause it's a joy that you, that men just will not let you take it from them and some women either. Whereas Star Trek, no one cares if you want to watch Star Trek and they don't like Star Trek. They don't see why you need to watch Star Trek. In your story, you can cast whoever you like in those other roles. Sometimes it helps having the same last name as all the hero characters in the stories told in your group. Virtue by association. Who are you? I'm right. Oh, God. No. No! (laughs) 
the story your parents tell you about who you are and who your family is and why we are or aren't following various of the rules can make all the difference. My uncle didn't let my cousins watch Star Trek ever because those stories took place in a universe in which you were meant to know there was definitely absolutely no God. Tribbles, blue people, and space hippies, though, but no God. Spoilers. Any time any alien race worships a god in Star Trek, it's going to be an evil computer. So what Ruth did was start writing Star Trek novels of her own, starring Captain Robert April, whom Ruth imagines being raised Quaker and having an in-depth knowledge of and love for the Bible. I think Ruth is on her third Star Trek novel now. This story as arbiter of facts thing is how we all operate. And the more you claim incongruent facts and toss them around, the more dangerous you appear to people following other narratives, busily othering you and calling you insulting names. I grew up to be an other, just like all the other brethren people, and grew up on stories of all kinds, far more stories than stats, more stories than theology, narratives, ones with evil servants, wise and foolish virgins, good Samaritans. And many of the stories I heard in meeting were not actually stories from the Bible. Some of them involved old Mr. McDowell, humorously trolling atheists and other scoffers, scoring points for our side against the stupid people. Don Miller wrote decades ago that art is a guy saying, I was here, and it was like this. And this album and podcast are part of me doing that, telling my own story. I try to be really honest, especially about me being annoying, pathetic, messed up, and an idiot. But that's still all it is. A story. My story. Some people seem to have not even been given a story in which they're anything but an oppressed victim, the prodigal son, the foolish servant, or some role like that, a narrative given to them by their cultural and social and family and church context. For some, simply experiencing a story that doesn't automatically cast their church group as the good guys and all who it punishes as bad guys in need of punishment can be very liberating, refreshing, consciousness-expanding, because when you get too contained by experiencing and understanding things through too small and simple a story too much of the time, it really helps to expand that story, make it a bigger one, with more things going on in a much bigger world. This podcast is a bunch of people telling their stories in an effort to try to get all of us to broaden ours as needed. If in your story, gay people are mostly all trying to turn the whole world gay, or white people are the devil and invented slavery and oppression besides, or Middle Eastern people pretty much all blow things up, or Christians hate gay people, or women just want to control men and take their money, and men hate women and just want to use them for sex, you might just need to make that story a bit bigger, with more variety allowed its characters. I'm not doing this podcast to try to create narrow-minded, zealous atheists and people who think they know everything and people who rail angrily against their family and church. I'm not trying to tell a story that says nothing besides brethren people are the bad guys. And I hope it's doing something other than that, at least some of the time. But I have a great belief in people getting together in virtual rooms when actual ones aren't possible and comparing their stories. I live for that. I was raised to be a delivery system for an evangelical end-times narrative. I grew up guiltily not handing out Bible literature and not preaching to my friends at school much, though secretly wanting all of them to get saved, to adopt the same worldview and narrative about the afterlife that I had been given. 
When I was starting my twenties, I was embarrassed at the tone deafness of the stories in the wild whipped cream outreach pamphlet our group was distributing, and I mocked it and got kicked out. I tried working at an isolationist Christian school showing kids videotaped courses that were overtly infused with fundamentalist conspiracy theory propagandic narrative to a degree that would have almost made even critical race theorists and gender studies professors alike blush. Almost. American fundamentalists were presented as oppressed victim-class martyrs throughout American and European history. I could never really get behind and feel good about that story. It was raising kids with a narrow, paranoid, fringe view of the world and the other people in it. It was too pat, too simple, and too weird. It was designed to divide and make it hard for the kids to ever relate to, understand, or connect to people with different worldviews, rather than helping them with that. I really like the musicianship and vocal lines written by Striper, but could never quite actually believe in the efficacy of getting a bunch of people into a room and blasting them with my own aching need for them to get saved in a way that matched my own salvation narrative and doctrine at a decibel level approaching that of a Learjet taking off while literally throwing Bibles into the crowd. I believe in that, or in the efficacy of making the cringiest failed attempts at the artiest, hippest monetized YouTube content ever winning souls and subscriptions for Jesus, or in Bible verses in bios, or the good old joint husband and wife Facebook account to show they're not cheating. I don't know what works or what to do. So as usual, I'm looking to Jesus and co. for inspiration. Conversations, I think. Letting people talk. Especially about doubts and fears, problems, withered hands, blindness, leprosy, depression, anxiety, loneliness, PTSD, and such. That seems like a good idea, far better than pretending we don't have any of that stuff, or that we need to hide those from God and everyone else as if they were sin and relationship deal-breakers. I guess I'm behind believing that truth sets people free, rather than binding them to their past, that letting the sun shine on mold and decay reveals and dries it up, that good is vibrant and strong, rather than a comforting, fuzzy fiction that we need to keep anyone from getting too close a look at for too long for fear it will melt in their hands. Because I do believe in evil, and like Johan, I'm trying to live a good I can believe in, and that actually works not just sit around telling myself comforting, implausible stories. You'll note that talking about stories or narratives gives you a way to talk about other people who see things differently from how you see them without using the imagery of Plato's cave. Nothing wrong with old Plato, but if you use his imagery, it inevitably casts you as being enlightened, having left the cave, and people who don't or can't see what you're seeing as being still stuck in a dark cave. And this is tempting, and correct if you're getting things right or have walked into the light out of a very dark, stifling place. But it can be unhelpful. It can be no smarter than the good old, I'm not saying I know everything, I'm just saying most people know nothing. It can be no holier than the good old, I'm not saying I never do anything wrong, I'm just saying that most people sin in a thousand horrible little ways that I do not. It can simply amount to seeing things only in terms of wake up sheeple or 
conservatives so stupid, or rank unbelievers who haven't seen the light of God's word yet, which leaves you assuming the correctness of your own perspective to a degree that means you have about as much hope of understanding their side of things as they do of ever seeing yours, about as much hope as there is of Twitter going out of business because everyone decided one day on there that they agreed about everything. And I'm attempting big things, not just name-calling. I'm not content to start sentences and internet posts with, I just just don't don't understand, understand. because when I don't understand, maybe I should shut up. I'm trying to have some insight into, sympathy for even, both sides of arguments. I'm also troubled by the ring of truth I hear in N.T. Wright and Marty Solomon looking at Paul's writing to the Colossians and saying there, and by extension our, religious worldview has more to do with the Greek philosopher Plato than anything anyone Jewish who is explaining things in the Bible intended us to hear them saying. Plato imagined that most people live out their lives in a dark cave with shadows of puppets being cast on the walls in the flickering firelight and people there thinking that they were seeing reality, but some of us have walked out into the sun and see the real things directly with our own two eyes. We like to view the world that way. We are far more Gnostic than we know, the here and now not mattering, a realm of elevated, perfect ideals existing elsewhere and elsewhen, far above what we're doing today. The binary enlightened versus in darkness stuff is in the Bible, all right, but not quite how we do it. And the same thing with the body versus the spirit stuff. We've taken it to the point of thinking Christians live very little of our lives in the dark, about much of anything, When this simply isn't reality, as we see but through a glass darkly, the Apostle says, and it leads to us teaching that Christians are to strongly de-emphasize our own molecules to the point of perhaps fearing and loathing our physical reality in favor of the Spirit to a degree no Apostle would have ever contemplated. In the Bible, God taking on a human body and living a human life is perhaps the most important thing of all. To a Gnostic, though, only the spirit matters, so that story doesn't, maybe didn't even really happen. And so we should live as spirits trapped in fleshly prisons, bodies of humiliation, eagerly awaiting being airlifted out of them to go where we're done with all this skin. Well, skin is what lets us touch each other, and with our faces and voices, it's what lets us connect to other people. Maybe what we do in our bodies matters just as much as what we don't do with our bodies, after all. But there's no better faith for a narcissist than Gnosticism. No better justification for all of the other bodies in the room, in fact, the very world itself, not only not mattering, but not even being terribly real. Not like one's own rich inner spirit and spiritual life, of course. Problem is, that's not how the Apostle Paul wrote, and it's certainly not how Jesus lived. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. As to my experience of middle-aged people objecting to everything and trying to impose outmoded strategies to real-time problems young people are really facing, Sandy says, I suspect that sometimes happens when people are in survival mode, 
coupled with a sense of superiority and dominance. Right. Patricia simply says, vampires. Peter says, it's an attempt to prove that they are better than the rest of us. It's rooted in an extreme feeling of inferiority. Trying to Work Things Out, Part 8. Trying to deal with church folks once they've pushed their big red button. I've got some people to talk on the podcast with me this season, all right. I'm not particularly interested in having people on here who are filled with anger, resentment, and accusations, though. Ones who felt and thought very little, either. I'm very interested in people who experience stuff and are trying to figure it out, like with their brains. Of course, I'd gladly have the most brethren of brethren people on here telling me in no uncertain terms all of the things they feel I am completely wrong about and what that makes me, but I can't get them to talk to me for five minutes even off mic. The more unthinkingly religious people are, the more they seem to avoid being in the same conversation, let alone the same room, as people like me. People who want to get into it, rather than agreeing to leave it lying in broken pieces people are stepping on. Seekers and believers don't mix. If I'm still searching for truth, knowledge, and understanding, maybe that means I think you still haven't found what I'm looking for. If your story is that you have everything someone like me needs, and my story is that you don't seem to have what I need, we have a problem. Every time I teach Macbeth, I identify more and more with Banquo's ghost. I drink... To the general joy of the whole table. And to our dear friend Banquo, whom we miss. Would he were here. What did Banquo do wrong that ended in his bleeding out in a ditch covered in stab wounds and gashes, then showing up as a bloody ghost at the dinner party while the newly crowned king, Macbeth, the man who'd had the deed done, told everyone Banquo was remiss in not attending that supper? Macbeth claimed to miss Banquo, then was shocked and terrified to see him there after all, albeit a damningly ghostly bleeding form, not like a force ghost in Star Wars at all. What had Banquo done that got him ostracized and taken out like that? He'd been there, seen things, he'd known the truth, and that's it. New shady stuff was going on as to the struggle for the throne of Scotland. He didn't even need to open his mouth about any of it to anyone. He didn't, in fact. The knowledge... The truth was in his eyes, so they shanked him in a ditch to put the light in those eyes out and left them there to go on with their lives without talking about or dealing with what needed to be faced up to. There were daggers in men's smiles, they all said, but they wouldn't put into words what had just happened. That story was not told. Macbeth had killed the king and taken his throne, and so long as they wouldn't put that into words, they continued to act like what had happened hadn't. And as long as they wouldn't deal with Macbeth and what he'd done, things continued to fall to pieces in the whole kingdom. And guys like Banquo had been there then, knew what had gone on, and even when killed, kept showing up as reminders that you can't kill or ignore the things you've done and don't want to admit to or talk about. Thou canst not say I did it. Never shall thy gory locks at me. The concept of confession is the putting what you did into words, telling a story that doesn't cast you as an innocent, misunderstood hero. When they showed me the parody pamphlet and asked if I would confess to knowing who had written it, I immediately told them I'd written it, and why, and apologized for so doing. And that didn't end well for me. 
Sometimes confessing can be interpreted as an agreement to accept the role of malicious villain someone else has all written up ready for you in their story. Sometimes, when people are looking to burn witches, you might find they've dressed you up as one. Did you dress you up like this? No! 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 no, no, no. no. Yes! 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 yes. Yeah, a bit! Yeah. A bit! A bit! She has got a wart! What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt? I got better. But I don't generally feel like Macbeth, nor even a witch. I feel like the ghost of Banquo, sometimes. And in my case, the table I haunt, bloodied and pale, is what we called the Lord's Table. And I am not a unique case, far from it. We fundamentalist unholy ghosts are legion. Try this. Go to church next Sunday. Look at the chairs where we all used to sit. Can you see a faint image of us still hanging in the air? An echo? Did we slowly fade away and vanish forever? Or were we helped out the door on our way? Did we fall from grace, or were we pushed? Are their bodies buried where you worship? People missing? Uninvestigated? And here's the kicker. Is what I just said there an uncalled-for, unlooked-for, confusing, vicious, mean-spirited, crazy, profane attack, or an attempt to talk, fairly calmly, albeit purpley, about an undeniable reality that, whether discussed or not, cannot be hidden? A brethren guy my age who had nothing at all to do with anything that happened to me back in the day and wouldn't have treated me that way himself ever was needled at the very idea that he was thought to be part of a group that possibly had done what they did to me and had then refused to talk about it. What I put into words was really simple. Our group kicked me out permanently, on purpose, without admitting any real reasons, and have then refused to meet and discuss it ever since, and they plan on shunning me for the rest of my life. I got into this with Ruth, who was raised in our group. My story is very simple. My story is that I, I was born and raised in a Christian group that some right. groups called the Plymouth Brethren, and right. that generally, because of not seeing eye to eye with them, they eventually mm -hmm. found a, a reason, a fairly contrived reason, to excommunicate me permanently for life with no intention of letting me back in. That's what right. I say in words. And I think that's fairly inarguable. I think that's balanced. I don't think that's a vicious attack. I don't think that's mm -hmm. a, that's a really rude thing to say or an unkind or unfair or unbalanced. I think that's really what happened. And yet mm -hmm. what I get from brethren people is, well, well, you weren't born into a Christian group. Like we're not, we're not a Christian group. Are you a group that other people do other people call you the brethren? Well, they do, but that, that's not us. And oh, was I kicked yes. out? Oh, no, you're, you weren't kicked out because people don't get kicked out and uh, kicked out of what? You know, there's nothing to be kicked out of. And, right. you know, so it's, it's all it's all this big Double game. Speak. And that's my particular angle on it. And it doesn't matter what the situation is. Most of the conversations can end up in that kind of nonsensical refusal to let words do their their holy work. I told Melody, still involved in a brethren group very like ours, that I managed, back in the day, to get the head guy to put into words the simple fact that they did not intend to speak with me again, particularly about ever lifting the global judgment of wickedness and the global directive for members to shun me or be shunned. So almost no one believes me, but I made the guy who kicked me out admit that he was never letting me back in. That seems legit. Why would he not admit that? Well, well I no, guess because in theory that. you you are supposed to you're supposed to do your penance and then come right. back in, right? This brethren guy my age is a principled person 
and he couldn't live in a reality where any of this was true about his group. He needed it to not be. It didn't fit his story. So he scheduled me in for an hour one day to show me that brethren people, a.k.a. him, weren't not talking to me about it at all. So I dropped by for my hour. It was nice. But I couldn't even get him to admit in words that we'd been raised in and that he was still part of a Christian group of any kind to begin with, let alone one that I'd been kicked out of, nor that they refused to talk to me about. I hadn't been kicked out, had I? I'd left, myself, he needed the words in the story to read. They hadn't refused to talk to me. It was vice versa, wasn't it? He needed the story to go. He just questioned, doubted, or denied my wording of each of the things. Yea, hath Wim Ben Hofwigan said. I think Mr. Integrity had to do all that. And he's not a bad guy. That's just not how his spiritual life needs to work. He talked, but dodged wordings. He had his wife serve me dessert and ate it with me to show me they, at least, weren't not eating with me either. Then let me know it was their supper time and sent me on my way while they ate with someone else who's left the brethren of his own accord, at least some part of it, as far as I know. Mission accomplished for Mr. Integrity, I guess. My putting of my situation in words had been demonstrated to be incorrect, he felt. Brethren people do talk to me, and they do eat with me, a couple of them every decade or so. So long as it's not a brethren group function, of course. Problem solved for him. And that is, by far, the farthest any still brethren person has ever gone to try to deal with me in any way at all. I spoke with Melody about the whole thing. Talking to a very nice brethren person my age now, and my story, when I put it into words, is that I didn't fit in and was argumentative and had different views. Mm -hmm. And so people excommunicated me in a very unconventional way on purpose to get rid of me so as not to have to deal with me anymore. And that after that, I continued trying to deal with them and trying to get back in. And after one meeting, they refused to communicate with me further and let me know that they would not be communicating with me ever again. And that's not supposed to happen. And when I told him that, he couldn't believe any single one of those things had happened. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, because if the goal is always to, you know, turn the penitent sinner back into the fold... I mean, these these are words I've heard. I don't know if I have them in the right order. So if I had been selling heroin, I would have had a better chance? Yeah, because that's selling heroin is really easily definable. Right. You can put it in words and no one can argue. Yeah. And yeah, and it has a me, beginning and an end. It's not an opinion. It's not a view. It's a thing. I think that if you were to put their problem with me into words, um, it's that they thought that my spirit was yucky. Yes. Yep. That sounds about right without, well, and, and your spirit is yucky. And also, um, I keep hearing the phrase, uh, from a previous church. We have such a nice fellowship here. And what they mean by that is keep it that way. Exactly. It means nobody rocks the boat, but it also means there are no deep relationships because if the relationships are deep enough, you know, that everybody has a yucky spirit. Yeah. We're not supposed to pretend otherwise, I guess. No. I mean, Jesus probably said something about that. Not being able to get people like Integrity Guy there to be interviewed for a podcast episode to illustrate how that kind of mindset works? I did the only thing I could think of. I role-played just such an interview with Michael Vetter. 
I played the part of the sort of person who often spoke to he and I in our adolescence and childhoods, trying to figure our church situation out. And I had Michael answer exactly as he would have when he was maybe 18 years old or 20 or 25, I suppose. Exactly as I would have answered, too, to show what it was like. What I'm trying to do, I'm getting your help with, is I'm trying to show why it's so hard for people who aren't brethren people to even talk to them about their church and their stuff. And it's, and it's even hard. Once you're kicked out, it's hard to even talk to them. Um, ideally, what I would do is have a bunch of them on and talk to them, but they won't talk to me off camera, let alone on. And so we're role playing as we're doing. And we're really trying not to mock them. And I would never do this with Muslim people or Orthodox Jewish people or Jehovah's Witness people because I've never been those things. The reason why we can do this, the reason why I feel comfortable doing this is because we were this. Every answer that you might give to my questions was something you, you used to say that because you used to believe that. So yeah. we're not doing this to mock, but because we can't get brethren people to do this for us. So imagine you, Michael Vetter, are 18 years old, and you have a very normal conversation where someone just says, yeah, are you a Christian? What would you have said? Uh, yeah, I, I am a Christian. Right. So um, do you go to church on Sundays? Um. Yeah, yeah, we don't call it a church. We we um, meet up with other believers on Sunday. But it's like a church, or what is it? It's like a church. Yeah, it's um, there's no, but there's no pastors or no um, preachers, no uh, uh, clergy of any kind. So there's no preaching. No, there's there's preaching. It's um, we we kind of like gather it together in a circle uh, and uh, this weight on the leading of the spirit and so with preaching different people will be led by the spirit to stand up and and uh, give a word so there is a bunch of preaching um so sunday morning uh yeah sunday morning is the the breaking of bread and that's the church um, service that you you have although you wouldn't call it church service and that's it for the week no, there's, there's, um, well, I mean, you've got a, we have a Sunday school class. Which would happen that. in the morning during church? On, on Sundays. So uh, while so they, at, while the grownups are at, worshiping, the children go and have Sunday school? Uh, no, no. They, 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 there's an adult Sunday school and a children's Sunday school. So the adults go to Sunday school too, but at a different yeah. time. So not, so no, you have to, at the same time. The kids will separate off. So you do Sunday morning worship. And then you do Sunday school right after? Some places do that. Some assemblies do that. Ours uh, has a Sunday school first, and then there's like a 15-minute break. Everybody eats cookies. And, and the adults go to Sunday school, too. And then you're done for the day? And then, No, then we have the breaking of bread, and that's the, the, the main meeting. That's the, the heart of, 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 of what we're doing. So for Sunday school, you'd read the Bible and sing songs about God. So how how would breaking a bread be different from that? Would it also be reading the Bible and singing songs about God? So it's sort of the same thing, and it's not just the adult version of that. Or what what do you mean? Uh, it's um, they're singing of Him. Um, it's it's a uh, it's the remembering of the Lord, which uh, as the disciples did uh, was was given to them by the Lord. Um, in um, 
back in when the the, the church was first started, um, they would they would uh, just break the bread and they would sing hymns and they would uh, pray um, and they would worship. Isn't the Sunday school remembering the Lord too, like telling stories about Him and what He did and said? The same as the request that. Uh, right, like you're saying, like the 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 main meeting is to remember the Lord, but didn't you already do that at Sunday school before? You remembered what oh, Jesus said and what he did? Loaf and wine. Oh, you take communion. Yeah, that's what remembering the Lord is. It's communion. So why why wouldn't you just call it that? Because it's a that's a, a Catholic term, I think. And it, okay. Uh, and that they just have they have like little wafers and they uh and the the half the time the priest will do the drinking for them. Um, and it's, it's, anyways, it, it's not, it's not going along with the, how it was originally set out by the Lord. So Sunday morning has communion and people would preach about various topics. Um, they might preach about some things from the old Testament, um, telling us to be kind to each other or something also at church. Well, during during the breaking of bread, there isn't. It's all about worshiping God, and so there's not really room for um, people to get up and preach. It would they would their own opinions would get in the way of us worshiping. Um, but the the um, that that's reserved for the reading meeting and the open meeting. Sometimes in the afternoon after the breaking of bread, we would have an open meeting where uh, brothers who were led by the Spirit could stand up and give a word like we talked like about. Wait, like how many church services are there in a week? Well, this is Sunday. There's, so there's there's uh, the Sunday school, then the breaking of bread, and then uh, a lot of times, usually like once a month, would be the open meeting, and and then and that was usually combined with the tea meeting, which is, or that's how that's a Canadian word for it, uh, which is have a meal together. Uh, and then there was a, a Sunday night. It was the gospel meeting, and then on um, Tuesday you'll have the the reading meeting and on thursday you'll have the prayer meeting usually in that order because by the by thursday through the week you're you really want to start praying um and some some meetings i know my assembly did for a while that uh, they combine the 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 reading and the prayer meeting into one evening instead of it being an hour long they'll make it an hour and a half and, and, and then you're all done so once you've done the reading of prayer meeting there's not gonna be any more meetings till sunday Ever? No, unless there's a young people's meeting, and that's like once a month too, maybe, depending on how active the young people are. Would it be safe to say that because Sunday morning is about communion, like you're saying, like every Sunday morning there's communion? Yeah. Doesn't that mean that church Sunday morning is mostly about the death of Jesus and no other topics? Um. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it is. So not just Easter. So if it were, let's say, Christmas, uh, what would you do for like the Christmas morning church celebration? Surely that would be more about the birth of Jesus or would it be about his death as well? I don't celebrate Christmas. A lot of people don't. Um, because you don't celebrate Christmas. Yeah. Why, why not? Like you're a Christian. Because it's on the same holiday as um, the, the old uh, uh, pagan um 
what is it? The, the winter solstice. Mm. Um, Let's say it's Sunday morning. It's your Christian group, not a church. It's December 25th that happens to fall on Sunday and you're doing church. Do you have any Christmas content at all? No more than usual. And maybe, maybe, like I said, one, one person who probably celebrates Christmas will stand up and, and read something, but they're, they're, they don't, there's no Merry Christmas going on. There's no tree. There's no Santa Claus. Uh, it, it's like the, the birth of Jesus didn't even happen then. What day was Jesus born on then? July 8th or something like that. Or July 6th. That's a whole different astrological I, sign entirely. Yeah, but it was just an appropriated holiday by the, by the uh, Christians, they took it because they were all already having a, a pagan holiday. Then they just re, reassigned it uh, so that they could keep uh, merchandising. Does your Christian group that you're not calling a church does it uh, do charity work in the community for like poor people and the homeless? Does it uh, raise yeah. funds and yes? Yeah, uh, once a month we we the, the young people uh, and uh, Mr. Burton all go down to the uh, the nursing home and we sing hymns to them. Um, and, uh, Corey is, has been bringing his guitar and, the, um, and it's, it's really nice to have a little bit of music to sing along with, with, the, with his, the guitar. Um, so you're sing, singing for the old people in the old folks home. Yeah. But what I was thinking of is, do they do charity work for the community where they would raise funds and they would feed the homeless and the, the hungry and so on? Um, about every two months, there'll be a, a trip out to Market Square where, uh, we'll pass out tracks to all the passerbys, you know, uh, as that, that's a work in itself there, uh, it's feeding the, the people. So you're feeding them the pamphlets? Yeah. So, but not not money, not not food or or groceries or but but pamphlets, right? Because it's, it would be leading them to the Lord, and that's ten times better than food or groceries. Right. Okay. Um, now, so you're, you're saying you're not a church. Um, are there members? Like, is there a membership list? People who are members and people who are not members. We don't use the word members. It's, it's like that. We're not members of it. You know, there's no roster like that. There's there is a, a a booklet called the list of gatherings, and that says where um, all of the gatherings around the whole world are. And in that, um, it'll list who's in each assembly. So, so, so nobody's kind of in. It's not like a list of all the people who are in. Right. Is anybody out? Yes, there there are those that have been put out, but yes. For you know various reasons. What's the purpose in putting them out? What's to protect the name of the Lord? To protect it from defilement. The spirit among us needs to be holy, and you don't want to defile the name of the Lord. You mean like the Lord's reputation? Yes. And by the Lord's reputation, is that distinct from your group's reputation? Of what we're associated with him. We're, we're the bride of Christ. So there's a unity there that if you, if your group's reputation is bad, then that hurts his reputation. Yeah. 
could that even keep people from going to heaven? Because they would hear these things. And if, if, uh, if the meeting's reputation is, there's been some bad rumors of people doing bad things, people would never find their way to to the Lord, never go to heaven because of the reputation. Um, so you don't have pastors. Do you have elders? Oh, yeah. So like, who, who's, who's your elder? Uh, Ray. Like, uh, Ray Land, because he's a, he's, you know, he's an old, old guy and he's uh, been walking with the Lord for years. So does he sit on a committee or does he have a financial stipend or something? No, no, we don't have, have any, the elders don't do that. The, the elders are just like the older people that you, so all the old people can be elders. Yeah. So somebody wouldn't go to for advice. Who would you say is the wisest female elder in your group? We don't that we don't call the females elders. No. No. Are the females treated differently? What do you mean treated differently? They, do they have to behave any differently? Do they have all the same role or do they have a different role? You were saying that during Bible study, um, anyone can talk, right? Yes. Anyone, anyone of the men can talk. The, the women, uh, Paul says the women are to be, I, I would, the women were, were silent in the assemblies. So what do the women do during services then? Like what role do they play? Um, if, if it's a worship service, they worship in spirit. And if it's a, a, a reading meeting, um, they learn. So they don't teach? Um, Sunday school, yeah. Oh, so they can teach people during Sunday school? Yeah, yeah. But in the assembly meeting, the, the women don't talk. So do women ever get kicked out? Yes. Are they involved in the kicking out? Uh, I mean, kicking out is not the right word for that. They, they, they might be put away from the Lord's table for it, uh, engaging in some kind of immoral activity. So women may be put away from the Lord's table. Uh, are the women involved in the process of putting people away from the Lord's table? At, at home, when they talk with their husbands, they, they are. Um, and, and then the, the husbands meet. Uh, what is, we call a brother's meeting, um, once a month and usually, and, or more if we speak and discuss, um, you know, that's where the, where you were talking about the elders doing finances. No, they, that's where the, the finances are figured out. If it's brother's meeting and the, the issues such as, you know, well, come up, any issue. They, Do the women discuss the finances and how the finances are allocated? They may make suggestions for their husbands. What if they don't have husbands? Um, so you mean like the, the young sisters? Let's um, say someone's 35 and she, and she's not married or her husband has died. Um, right. wh- what would she do? She would have to go to an older brother, um, and, and treat him as a, as a, a father. Uh, in, in, you know, and, and if she had suggestions where she thought money should go, um, she, she could do that. Now, now the, there's not a significant amount of money going to the poor of the town anyway, right? Well, some people are, are individually exercised to um, 
you know, to, to take, you know, like Mrs. Wilkins, she takes turkeys uh, on Thanksgiving down to the homeless shelter and hands them in. But not everybody does it, and it's not like a, a concerted effort. I, I would. But the group, the group, there's no, there's no conversation to be had by the women about where the money is going to go for feeding the hungry because you're not really doing that primarily. Um, no, to... we, we send the money to to uh, the laboring brothers usually or assemblies that are you know have, have some kind of disaster or need or you know so and so has a broken leg. Okay, so but looking after sort of members, as it were, but and and leading members. Yeah, 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 prominent member. To raise an awkward subject, uh, rumor has it that your group split into two separate factions recently. Is that true at all? Yes. Why did that happen? Well, it's, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know, okay. Is there anybody who you don't worship with anymore because of that little difference? Yes. Um, a lot of people, like about 50, it split 50-50. And there was, uh, so a, a lot of people that I was good friends with. So if they want to worship with you, can they do that? No. I don't understand. Um, they're holding to um, uh, doctrinal evil. Uh, like their their doctrine isn't isn't correct. Can Can you give me an example of something they might believe that you would say is not correct? Well, what they haven't done is submit to assembly authority, and that's acting in. Self will. So the, the, the assembly authority, if you can't submit to assembly authority, you're, you're not submitting. But there's not a pastor. No. So it's the elders? Yes. It's the elders. Yeah. Now, so what happened is there was a bunch of people who disagreed with the elders. So they're in trouble. As far as I know, it's started between two guys who couldn't agree on something in an assembly either in Toledo or, or in Canada. And which one was the elder? I don't know. I don't know, but I, it had to do with, with, um, well, it, it, I don't know what it had to do with, honestly. It's, but the, the, the faction split over, as far as I can tell, it split because there were those who were more progressive and those who were, um, you know, sticks in the mud feeling. And this is from my perspective, but you know, that, the, the fact is those that were progressive didn't listen to assembly authority. And so they're, um, we can't eat with them. Were, were some of the people who were progressive elders themselves, would you say? Yeah. So you're yeah, saying think, that elders yeah. on elders didn't agree and people were punished for not siding with one elder against the other elder. I think the split came when, when, the Ottawa Assembly uh, wrote a letter saying they put a whole another assembly out, which technically nobody knew if that was even possible. Um, like the the elders in that assembly were put out. Oh man, 
I haven't thought about this stuff for this a while. This sounds very complicated. Yeah, there, it, it was complicated. I mean, but one, one assembly had, had silenced the brother and then the, uh, other, and then that brother went to the other assembly and talked at that assembly. And then the first assembly was like, Hey, you know, he can't talk there. And they're like, well, we don't agree with your decision. And then they're like, well, we put you out. So he went to their assembly and the elders decide that he could speak in that assembly. They had no problem. Yeah. Yeah. But then the elders in a different assembly said that they had a problem with what the elders in the other assembly decided in their assembly. And so told all the other assemblies that they had to cut off that assembly because of the elders not agreeing with their elders. Yeah. And were all of the elders in both of the assemblies in agreement? No. This sounds really complicated. Yeah, so the themselves split. And, and it went the two directions. The least realistic thing about that little exercise, besides the interviewer continuing down a path of leading and pointed questions that are really based on insider knowledge, is that any brethren person asked these questions would have bailed on the conversation after being asked about two things. Brethren people aren't supposed to waste their time occupying their thoughts with these unprofitable things, let alone airing their dirty laundry in public by discussing them with an outsider. Troy is right. I, for some reason, am wired that I seem to need people like Brethren Dude Mr. Integrity there to put things in words we can agree upon, so I can feel like we're on the same page of kind of the same story, or at the very least, taking place in the same cinematic universe somewhere. To admit that there's this Brethren group, some people call the meeting or the assembly or the Lord's people or the people of God or even the Plymouth Brethren. Well, nope, not happening. He denied that. I need them to admit in words that some people are communion-taking members of our group and some aren't, and that some people get kicked out of that membership. Well, no luck there either with him, because that's not the story they're following, and they need to protect their story from mine. They need to not admit the simple facts that I once was in, but now I'm out, and how and why, and that it was done knowingly, on purpose, and that there never was and never will be any willingness to officially talk to or acknowledge me in any way at all, let alone decide that maybe I'm not such a wicked-ass person. First day of the week, not to keep company with such a one, no, not even to eat, after all. None of that is ever going to be admitted. Not in words. Not like I need. I have to live for the rest of my life as a, you know, who, you know, so... People had to, you know, and, and, and now, you know? Try and fill in those blanks. They tell a story, one I'm cast in, the one used to explain me to people who aren't then going to inquire further and shouldn't be speaking with me. And something deep within me could deal with my sentence, my lifelong excommunication, my fundamentalist shunning, my evangelical fatwa, and those of all of my family and friends, so much better if we could just, once and for all, admit what is going on there. Tell that story of what the rest of our life is as regards our birth culture, why we can expect to continue to be excluded from weddings, funerals, and things, why our families are divided over religion instead of brought together by it. But that's not a story we're allowed to tell. People who don't, of course, talk to me, 
have said, I'm the most bitter, read angry, aggressive, obsessively resentful, grudge-holding former brethren person they know of. That's the character I'm playing in their story, Mr. Wrath. If they ever consent to speak with me, though, as Mr. Integrity did, they see immediately, as he admitted, that I'm just not that angry. He said as much. But people keep assuming there's all this anger, this resentment and malice, and then they don't see that. And they realize that they don't know what I am or why I'm acting like I am. If it's not hate, anger, bitterness, and resentment fueling my thinking and talking, what is fueling it? It certainly never stops. What keeps it going? We all need our narratives. I'm always amazed at how many people who grew up in fairly constant rebellion against their church and fled or were kicked out of it and live a life now that is the exact opposite of what meeting people are supposed to, yet remain deeply, fiercely, angrily defensive of the meeting. They won't hear one bad thing said against it. They've accepted the sinner, rebel, prodigal role in its story. They're fighting to preserve the story in which they play a villain role, because that's their story. They need to keep that story in the air so they have a role. It's like where I wanted the meeting to be right about everything, and when it gradually became obvious that they often weren't, others need the meeting to remain their sacred calf, their thing that is above mocking or criticism, a thing that gets to be right, just as they don't mind over much being wrong so long as they get to be free. A lot of Catholics are like this, too. And people like me are very upsetting to people like that. A formerly brethren friend's formerly Catholic fiancé walked out of the apartment when we began deconstructing our religions, because he was an atheist, but a Catholic atheist. There was no God, but if there was, he'd be that Catholic one. So the guy left because we're talking about the stuff you don't talk about and getting other people to talk about it as well. It's viewed as combative, as an attack, rather than what it is, an attempt to find the most confusing and problematic stuff, put it clearly and honestly into words, and try to make sense of it so there can be calm and peace. Try to make it something other than a fight that doesn't achieve anything or a, a lifelong refusal to speak, to build onto the story using words. Some final thoughts on narratives. If someone essentially leaps unexpectedly into my day and does something which ruins it, in my story, he or she is probably going to be a villain. And it's very possible that they're acting that way because in their story, I'm the villain. Something like that. Now, if I don't even know what the story they tell themselves is, they're going to stay just like that in my story. But if you have your story, your view, your narrative, and you share it with someone you're not getting along with very well, and they do the same for you, that can change everything. You can see things from a different angle. You don't have to adopt their story. They don't have to adopt yours. But there then exists the possibility of each adding bits to the stories as they are fleshed out more and have more information and insight put into them. Good stories can have ambiguity, nuance, the unknown, and the unresolved in them. So, in my actual head was the growing suspicion that we brethren folk had an unhealthy, carnal, fleshly, simplistic, not spiritual relationship with rules and structure, and a problem as to the obsessive controlling of other people's behavior, a lack of a normal relationship with joy and pleasure. We had a failure to leave people alone, to be themselves more. In their story, you obey God and the Bible, you stay out of the world, and you are happy, at peace, and God blesses you. It's very simple. No room for nuance. 
but a whole lot of Bible just doesn't touch that story at all. It's telling different ones. It's doing and saying other things. It's describing what sounds to us like Smurfs in Narnia. In my story, we brethren people were being raised to obey some very odd teachings about God and the Bible that didn't work in real life, nor add up with a very unscriptural, twisted view of and approach to living in this world, one that Jesus wouldn't have recognized, let alone shared, and their method hadn't worked for me, despite me really trying it full bore. I was not happy, I was not at peace or blessed by God when I was my most brethren. And when I became less brethren, absolutely everything got better apart from my acceptance by brethren people, who resented it and began sabotaging my young life. They felt like they'd lost control of me and felt threatened by how I viewed things. I was told I was not welcome at brethren youth group activities in my early 20s because I was confused. So in their story, I'm confused and doing things that made me less happy and at peace, less conscious of God and the Bible. And in my story, I'm being forced to open my eyes to God and the Bible, not being what I've been raised to believe them to be like. And I'm in my story less confused and more happy and more at peace, only they keep acting threatened by all of this and acting vengeful. It's an odd little dance. I want to talk to them. They refuse to talk to me. They claim I'm confused, but when I interact with them, it seems to reveal greater and greater confusion at their end, to the extent that they avoid talking to me because it confuses them like nothing else. In a perfect world, we both get to have our own perspectives, our own narratives, our own way to see things. In the real world, I didn't work to change their narrative, I just looked to share my own. In the real world, they didn't tolerate a different view, or compare views with me, or anything of the kind. They just treated me as a gangrenous limb that had to go, because it seemed to have too much life still in it. So, this is where I'm left. I genuinely feel I can understand where they're coming from, and what their worldview and narrative is. I'm pretty certain they're actively working never to hear my worldview, let alone give it a chance to coexist in the same world as theirs. They are not avid listeners to or interviewees for this podcast, for example. I'm going to great lengths to be understood. I'm not holding back much. I'm continually saying what I think is going on, and they don't want me to do any of that. I think a whole lot is revealed in my willingness to talk to you and be better understood by them and their excommunicating and shunning me and treating me as a contagion to avoid that happening. This song is about failures to deal as a younger person trying to get his life together with the middle-aged folks who had grown inflexible and unheeding when younger people told them the simple truth that feeling, thinking, and doing what the older generation had done was simply not working out not now, not for us, and the tearing apart of families that then ensued was terrible, parents refusing to go to weddings, children refusing to go to funerals. I'm also unconvinced that going gluten-free, doing yoga or whatever, would be terribly helpful to me. I have noted in the past that a growing number of women seem to find great healing in yoga classes and diets and breathing stuff, and that all of this physical body stuff is so emotionally profound to them that they call it spiritual. Angel says this is partly about the fact that most adult men, no matter what happened to them, do not walk around feeling as unsafe in their body for as much of the time as women do. So women have to get used to their bodies and feeling safe in them on a daily basis. To get along properly in a body, she says, you have to feel safe in it. To be a woman is to be frightened a lot of the time. 
or so women tell me. I do find it daunting, and this is so many female survivors of things. It's always yoga and breathing and mindfulness, and I don't know if I can do those things or if it would suit me. Nature I can do. So my whole thing is, and I think that women feel unsafe in their bodies, so they do all this stuff naturally so that they feel safe in their body again, whereas for men, it's never a thought that you could feel unsafe in your body, but your nervous system might feel unsafe. And so yeah. I would definitely doing breath work or doing yoga or anything to make your nervous system feel restful inside of your body. I did Kung Fu and sword fighting. I need to get in touch with my inner, like I can be dangerous. And uh, I've flirted with meditation just in terms of I need to make it stop my brain sometimes and I'll focus yeah. on an image. So I, I don't imagine I'm doing it as recommended, but I have learned to like focus on an image and shut out. Because would you say that meditation, because I don't know, is it like letting the thoughts float across your brain like fish in a tank, or is it more like emptying the tank so there's no fish? Because I don't know that one, and I'm curious. So the way that I meditate is I let the fish swim, and I see what they go towards. So I like that. I can do that. I can't yeah. empty it. Me no. neither. So again, it was that thing of feeling like I'm doing meditation wrong, and then just being like, well, I just need to find what works for me, so what works for me? And so the way that I meditate is I let my brain run. I give it a direction to run in and I tell it like, go for it. And so I have guided, like I call them cognitive meditations where I will have you sit down and work through an issue in your brain, or I'll have you work through a thought in your brain because your brain wants to work. It wants to solve a problem. And once it's worked through a problem, then it wants to sit still. It's the same thing with movement. If I tell you to sit still all day, you're going to go crazy. But if I, you know, make you go outside and run for three hours, you're going to come back in and sit on the couch and you're going to lie there and do nothing. And so it's just learning to work with what naturally happens. I'm glad you said what you did because I noticed there was a gender difference as far as the body. And what mm -hmm. I noticed was that these women in my group were raised so repressed and so targeted. And when they are freeing themselves, they keep talking about being spiritual instead of religious. And I noticed that everything that they felt was spiritual was about their body. I'm not saying, therefore, it's not spiritual. I'm saying, what is spiritual? Breathing with your body. What's spiritual? Becoming a vegan is spiritual. Um, yeah. Doing yoga is spiritual. These are all your body. And I realized that just getting in touch with their body was so profound that it was the most spiritual thing they probably ever experienced. I was kind of mm -hmm. jealous. That doesn't work for me. I don't know. What, I don't know exactly what I could do. The meditation, maybe. I think that men don't have the thought enter their head that they are unsafe in their body. I think you're right. And that doesn't mean that your body feels safe. Just Nervous system, you, you said. Yeah. Right. So just because you have decided that you don't feel unsafe in your body doesn't mean that your nervous system is calm and it doesn't mm. mean that you feel safe. No. And I mean, I, a couple of years ago, I had a, an MS attack. So I have some mild neurological damage. But what that is, of course, is my nervous system, my like yeah. my neurological system attacked itself because it felt under threat. It's like yes. an allergic reaction. And exactly. although the doctor is presented as being just random, just genetics, or whatever, I don't, I'm not sure. I think my life was at a place where that happened. Yeah. And the other thing about it is that the reason getting in touch with your body is a spiritual practice is because your body doesn't lie. It can't. I like that. Something else that I, I don't know why I believe this either. I believe that your body knows. I also think your heart note, like since I was quite young, I think that everyone's mm -hmm. walking around and they know with their head, whatever we kind of agree that we know now and when we're ready to say that we know now. But I think in our heart, we know everything all the time, pretty much. 
like in a room, yeah. if there's, if there's sorrow in a room, we all feel the sorrow in. And yeah. it bothers me the degree to which people will basically say, until we all decide to admit it with words, it's not real. And I, we're all feeling it. Yeah. Like all of my relatives but me, my sister is talented in and highly trained in various forms of exercise, being a qualified Pilates and yoga instructor, as are many of my cousins. They are all those extremely annoying middle-aged people who delight in running marathons weekly and crossing their legs while doing handstands and things like that while not eating anything that's not actually green. I didn't get any of that good genetic physical self-discipline material. I guess I know a bunch of words and have depression and MS instead. On the subject of healing from past trauma, using the physical, my sister texted me, I was thinking about your comment about women survivors of trauma from cults being gluten-free and doing yoga, and I realized you might not know that childhood trauma often causes digestive problems and thus trouble digesting certain foods. It is linked to many diseases in both men and women. I think women are more acutely aware of their bodies out of necessity because of menstruation and pregnancy and so on, and are also more likely to seek treatment outside of the mainstream medical system, which functions in many ways similarly to the hierarchy seen in cults. Yoga is a way to manage anxiety and panic attacks through conscious breathing, which gives back a little control over those frightening experiences felt in the body. Classes also provide a group energy that is not usually intrusive, but gives a kind of fellowship and healing that is absent in most churches and so on, where a person with trauma might go. Men from these cults with trauma and men in general often look at their bodies as systems separate from themselves, much like the medical model, and are less likely to trust in the non-mainstream medical treatments that are available. They may not necessarily be aware of the connection between digestion issue and trauma or other disease in the body and the gut biome that develops in the womb and carries from mother to child its bacterial blueprint. Yoga is too vulnerable and soft an experience of connecting to the body and breath for most men with trauma and can be intimidating and frightening for them. Martial arts or powerlifting offer a way to gain control over the body and empower it where this may have been taken away from them. Two sides of the same coin, really. I can speak to both sides as I've gravitated to both types of exercise depending on what I was dealing with in the body at the time and how I wanted to feel in my body. That's my personal perspective, not an argument for or against anything or anyone. My sister would know. She can lift almost as much weight as me, and she's half my size. Gave birth to an 11-pound baby without drugs, too. For her, either. Jenny from Sword Class has thoughts on how to deal with past neglect and bad stuff. While I was growing up, a lot of my emotional needs weren't being met. I would argue that I had to meet a lot of emotional needs of other people, and mm -hmm. It is still something that I am very bitter about. I am very angry about. Um, but it's, I am finding that it's something that I need to learn to grieve and need to learn to let go. Mm -hmm. Because holding on to this anger and this bitterness, it's, it's not helping me. It's, it's keeping me here. So I, it's not that like it doesn't matter and I need to just let it go. I, mm. I say I need to grieve for it. I heard that because people will, people will tell you just like move on, just forget about it. Just don't think about it. And what I always hear is like, don't deal, don't reach any wisdom or lasting position about it and waste that. And I think that my, my expectation anyway is that as you deal with your past, there's 
precious things that can be derived from that dealing before you let it go. Yeah. And like the thing with grief, and this is other, other things that I have gleaned from being on the corner of internet that I frequent and I found it helpful is grief doesn't disappear. It gets smaller. Sometimes it, mm-hmm. it's, it's always there. Sometimes it's livable. Sometimes it's overwhelming and it's just something that you, it's a part of life that you cannot change, but that you can learn to live with and accept. And acceptance isn't that you think that it's okay, but it's that part where you realize and you tell yourself and you believe and you recognize that it is something that happened to you. And this is the way that things are. Mm-hmm. Nothing beyond that. Like you don't need to be happy about it. You don't need to be sad about it, but you need to, you need to be able to deal with it on a like, this is history level. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately or fortunately, it forms you. Like formative means that it formed you and it doesn't mean that you're trapped in it and it defines everything. I view it as being a tree and it's where your roots are and it's not where your branches are. Like I view it that way that you do spring from it. A lot of people that were raised like me just pretend they weren't raised like me. And I'm trying to make gold out of it. I'm trying to weaponize it if I can. Whatever way people can deal with it without being like self-destructive is Mm -hmm. a good way of dealing with it. What I think of is like, it's part of the material that makes up you. Like it's, it's part of the clay that goes into a bowl or it's part of the fabric that goes into a quilt. And it's all of these things. You wouldn't want a pill that made you forget every bad thing that ever happened to you. You wouldn't want that. I, I don't know. About Most that. days you, you, you would want that. How, how would you be you without those things? Am I being me even with those things? Because That's depression has question. really sapped my yes. sense of self, you know? <laughs> no, I get you. I asked Kim why not only were we not supposed to think about our upbringing, but many who have left, unlike me, choose not to. The thing I know is the people who left first, the people who will talk about it, the people who thought about it. So um, number one, women. Yeah. And number two, gay people. Yeah. Um, because it's like the meeting offered them virtually nothing. So people like me were being strung along with well you're you're a straight male like what could be wrong for you that's all going to work you can it's all fair right so if i read my bible and i have things to say i'm going to be allowed to speak and they're going to respect what i have to say absolutely not you do not have the right last name you don't have the social cachet it was all rigged and we didn't know it my father was trying to do um more or less what your father succeeded at and my father failed he got slapped down basically and which destroyed him because that was his only thing that he wanted to do with his life. And I I think that he didn't know and still is confused about the fact that the system's rigged. Like you don't get to be a good person and you get rewarded. Right. Yeah. That's not how it works. What do you think about the fact that most people won't talk about it even? I don't know. That's, I mean, everyone's experience is so different. And like, even just you and I talking right now, like we're, we're having that conversation where like, we're talking about a similar situations, but having like very different and sometimes opposite experiences, mm-hmm. sometimes similar, but like yeah. very different, you know, in a lot of ways. And 
I don't know. I think for a long time, I also didn't want to talk about it because I just didn't want to deal with it. You know, mm-hmm. just the disassociation. And I went through a lot of like my early 20s, just really not thinking about it at all or talking about it. And, you know, if people were like, oh, you know, but your parents like, I'm just like, oh, well, we're not close, you know, or never getting into that really. And then for me, when I got a little older, it was almost like, this is an interesting part of my life. I realized that it was a big part of forming who I am. And so I needed to talk about it a little bit. I think just to understand myself. But I think if you don't want to like put the mirror up and look at your life, then I don't know, it's a hard thing to do, especially as we get older to say, oh, this is how I've lived my life. And I don't necessarily agree with everything I've done or Mm -hmm. everything I've been a part of or everything my family's been a part of or or whatever, you know, to ask those questions. Well, why is this person that I love still dealing with this? Why do they still go? What does it mean to them? Why is this happening? I think once you start to, once you pull out that first thread, you know, and everything starts to unravel, that's a lot for people. Like, and if if you're not in therapy, like watch out. I get it. I get why people don't want to talk about it, but I think it could really set people free. And this is really cool. Talking to you is really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah, I I think I don't know what Grace wanted exactly, but she was basically saying to me, "Come on, just play the game, sweetheart." We, we had a division. We had almost no one under forty left. Yeah, and I was a Sunday school teacher at one point, and I think she wanted me back for that. Mm-hmm. So she needed me to be, you know, in good stead. But I didn't want to teach Sunday school anymore. Did you teach Kim? I taught Kim. I think right. that's part. Of yeah, because she... I think I took over the like kindergarten class or or like very young, mm-hmm. and then maybe I went up to a little bit older. And Kim was there for sure um, at one point um, with a small group, and and I had a lot of fun with them. Yeah, that must have been. You must have done it done well because she said she thought you were so cool. We had fun. I used to do different things. I remember taking them outside and letting them do something on the sidewalk, like a craft on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. which was kind of unheard of. Um, but yeah, I only, I did it for a short period of time and it was just before I kind of was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm completely done with this. Um, and I only got it by default because the division happened and they couldn't replace, uh, Claudia Coleman, I think. Mm -hmm. And so Grace was like, um, here, Debbie, if you'll just behave, you can teach Sunday school. (laughs) In pretty much every church environment I've ever been in, there's been the three word claim often stuck on a sign right out front. All are welcome, as well as the totally, not remotely cult-sounding invitation to join us. But my experience has been that what's really going on if you start showing up there is a different three-word thing. Do. You. Fit. And I never have, anywhere. And most human groups will drive you away or kick you out if you don't fit. Some of the most open, touchy-feely churches I've tried attending are surprisingly controlling of what people are allowed to believe, how they're allowed to interpret the Bible, and definitely what they're allowed to discuss with one another regarding it. Safest, I've found, to not care or talk about that kind of God and the Bible stuff there, or really to not show up to begin with. When talking to Michael Vetter years later, I was finally able to ask him how exactly he was able to leave the brethren, but then live with and care for his in-laws, who took his action of leaving as a declaration that the brethren were wrong, and who then daily needed him to take that judgment back. It's like the very opposite of my situation. I was judged to be wrong, and never to return. The group were the judges, and they made the judgment that I was wrong. 
Michael and his wife did something the group would interpret as passing judgment on the group as being wrong. So the group views me as having a judgment laid on me to perpetuity, and it views Michael as having gone first and having laid a judgment on them collectively. These are very different stories. That's the difference between leaving and being kicked out. Michael admits he made damn sure, having seen my position, to act first as to official pronouncements. To understand Michael Vetter's answers to my question, there were two of them, it's good to remember that image of the magic castle from my old song. Michael's in-laws are in their 80s, from central, powerful, unquestionable brethren families on both sides of both sides of the sides, and they have always seen the world as a dangerous place we are only safe from, so long as we hide inside these impregnable magic castle walls. That's their story. They shifted Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress Is Our God to A Mighty Fortress Is Our Group. You may have noted that trick being pulled over and over again. They say the Lord, and they mean the meeting. In times of dire need, they might view themselves as being responsible for the purity, spiritual safety, and reputation of the place to banish someone like me to go outside the walls, quoting Bible verses about not keeping company, no, not even to eat with such a wicked person as me, and consigning me to an existence devoid of blessing outside those walls turned over to Satan himself for mortification of the flesh. Just that. Something specifically was your in-laws. Your in-laws couldn't really be hardly any more central to this brethren group globally. And you basically lived with them and looked after your mother-in-law. So most people are not in that situation. So I guess I kind of wanted some insight into how do you leave the group, which is going to be interpreted as saying the group is valueless or incorrect. If you say, like, we are going to do what you say is wrong, we're going to say it's right, and that tends to be the first and only topic of argument that people want to have every time they see you. They want to try and convince you that you're wrong and change your mind about going to the wrong place to worship or not going to the right place to worship. And you were in a very different situation that you lived with them and interacted with them a lot. So how did that work? How did you do it? I wasn't in a position of having horrible things done to me. There was no resentment. When I left, it was for the reason of, where they were seeing a wall, they had this enclave inside the wall and they were all facing outside protecting what was on the inside. I didn't see any wall there at all. And I was like, well, if I don't see the wall and you do, and I am able to, you know, walk through and come back, does that make me like not part of you? You know, kind of this. So I, I was able to, to walk outside of, of the wall and be like, that wall doesn't exist. It took me years to get to that, but I got to it. And, and everybody inside is like, Oh, you know, like this is, you know, they're crying and this is awful. You, you've left us when we ended up at, at like Bethany's parents place and living basically with them. I had no shame. I had nothing. That's how I got over it. I didn't allow anyone to make me feel ashamed for my choices. And when they would ask me questions, I would tell them exactly why I had done what I had done. Mm-hmm. It's very. It, it happened two, maybe three times in a year that I was asked, you know, why did you leave? And this is while I'm, you know, I'm living there. I'm going to meetings every Sunday, sometimes even in the weekdays. Now, you can start to see those walls, as I did, as a flimsy cardboard box they'd assembled, protecting no one from anything, but taken deadly seriously by those inside who won't let you just step over the sides of the box as you otherwise would. Or, like Michael, 
you could view them as entirely imaginary and make a point of stepping right over them with a smile, looking surprised and confused when they're surprised and confused at him, filled with his childlike innocence but seeing clearly the naked fact that the emperor has no clothes. Can you shed some light or explain as unto an outsider why you couldn't or what would happen if you tried to actually have real conversations about anything? So if if somebody is shaming you, why wouldn't you say, I'm uncomfortable with what you're saying. I think you're just trying to make me feel guilty. What are what are all the reasons why that these genuine interactions just somehow didn't happen or weren't possible or were fended off? Someone comes up to you and they're clearly trying to make you feel guilty or or dominate you spiritually. Why don't you just say what's happening? Well, I think I finally started to once I realized that it was happening. I mean, and and that and that's also the point where people are like, oh, he's not one of us. Once I started doing it, the entire conversation, their input eventually became your words, not mine. Because every time they said something, I would respond to what I thought they were suggesting and they would deny that they were suggesting it. They try and shame me. I suggest they're trying to shame me. They deny that they're trying to shame me. And that, it became a non-conversation. Yeah, yeah so, your, your conversation style is fantastic. I always love it because you, you would be able to uh, address the, the root of, of what they were asking rather than the question itself, but it, the root was even more. Is it kind of like when the, when the Lord, you know, well, he asked the question back to the Pharisees, and they're like, you know, what, by what power do you do this? And he's like, well, uh, I'll ask you a question. By what authority was John's ministry? Was it from God or from men? And they're like, well, if we say one thing, was the finally they come back and they're like, we don't know. And he says, well, neither do I tell you. He didn't say, I don't know either. He said, no, neither do I tell you. He's answering like what, what was at the root of that. And then another similar interaction is where they're saying, they're asking him a bunch of theological questions. And his question to them is, why are you trying to kill me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they were. They were. And, and he were. didn't say, are you trying to kill me? They would have said, no, you're crazy. How ridiculous. Yeah. So why are you trying to kill me? And that, and I don't think that was just to be offensive. I think that if they had thought about the reasons why that they wanted him dead, this would have shed a lot of light on the situation. So uh, what you're describing, this is, you know, me 2.0 or 3.0. When I was a teenager, I didn't have those moves, but eventually, yeah, it would start to come out that someone would come up and say something. And what I would have always got accused of is putting words on other people's heads. And I do too much, you know, mental air quotations. Someone would say something and it's the most passive aggressive, stupid thing to say. So you're saying, but sometimes they very clearly are trying to say something. Now, to someone as socially maladroit as me, all social stuff is imaginary. But people play along with it. So if you want to ever deal practically with people, you have to deal practically with whatever their imaginary stuff is to them, whatever the story they're telling is. There really, literally is an imaginary wall being imagined by them. That's just the social reality. That's their story. You may not be evil, corrupting, dangerous, or wicked, but if the group issues you a registered letter informing you that you have been judged to be just that by the group, you can expect to be treated just as if every word of that were true whenever you're dealing on their turf. You walk into their meeting room, and that's the reality in there. That's the story they're telling. You don't get to edit what's going on in their heads or their story. You can't talk your way out of it either. That's the story they're living and telling. You don't get a say. But Michael has always been able, unlike me, to not try to argue them out of their fantasy world to convince them or somehow get them to take it back. Spoilers, they're never going to because they can't and continue on as always. 
Michael's approach, rather, is to decide and behave and apparently feel as if imaginary things are imaginary. So if someone's imagining he's walked outside those walls, he hasn't really, because there aren't any walls. He's able to ignore everything you think and smile warmly at you and seem to genuinely like you anyway. To not be trying to start a fight with you at all. I resolved in myself that, okay, all these friends and people that I knew, you know, through Bible conferences or, you know, you, you would meet, but you would have all this frenetic talking and whatever that would pass between you. Um, and you would, you would gain something you know, delightful. But to, to say, oh, oh, none of that actually existed and we're, I, I can't ever talk to you again, to me is bullshit. You can't do that. Right. Um, and I'm not going to allow it to happen. So I'm going to fight to get in there and make you smile or make you somehow react to the fact that, I'm actually pouring love on you. You know, I'm behind you giving you a back massage and I'm the guy who walked away from, and I'm not in the meeting anymore, but I'm the one who is able to, to put enter, put positive love into your body, uh, by physical contact to start with by not hating on you. Um, no wonder most or, of us couldn't do that. We were Canadians of stout Scottish and British stock and there was no love lost because there was not a whole lot of love to begin with. And so, when they kicked us out, there weren't tears and like they might have felt that it was a little bit wrong intellectually. Yeah, I got to say your your area was so dry. It was like a desert up there as far as people were loving on each other. And any any uh, Ew. And, and the... <laughs> when people talk about loving on each other, I just picture bodily fluids. I can't help it. I'm sorry. Do not love on people without permission. You need consent for that. I was never able to so brashly ignore the story the entire group is living globally and behave as if my story is the only one in the room and do that warmly and kindly with hugs. Also, I find when I'm kind of trapped in a room with a bunch of people who've cast me as this or that in their story, I don't have a strong enough sense of self to know I'm going to be able to laugh it off or remain untouched by it emotionally. It messes with my head. Stories are powerful. I think Michael and people like him struggle less with what others think about them to begin with. I also think Michael grew up in a family that always told him, when brethren folks cast him or his family in a bad role, that the brethren group were just wrong. That he and his family were better than the brethren admitted. That the brethren were a bit odd sometimes, over strict, and people who got things wrong on occasion. I grew up in a family that taught me that I and my family were worse than the brethren knew, imagining the brethren had slacked off troublingly of late and were letting us away with murder. I think Michael starts by feeling fairly okay or even good about himself, and if the brethren don't like a bunch of things he is or is thinking or feeling, saying, or doing, the two views kind of negate each other. I start out feeling a lot of shame, doubt, and self-loathing, and if the brethren don't like a bunch of things I am, am thinking, feeling, saying, or doing, that kind of stacks right heavily on top of what's already weighing me down, and it's hard to stand up under that. For me, there are two parties telling two different stories. They can't listen to mine being told in a podcast or outside of it, and I'm not going to fight them about that in their own room. And it's tempting to fight when they act like there's just one story, because you're playing along with theirs to some degree to get along with them, and they're trusting you to. If someone shakes your hand despite your wickedness or withholds their hand because of it or sticks out their left hand to deal with it, all of those things have happened to me. They're trusting you to just take all of that as them living that story. And I have, sometimes looking them very directly in the eyes while they do it 
and finding them unable to give eye contact at all. But that's the story we're trapped in together. My having a second story doesn't do much of anything in a scenario defined by them. To them, there is only the one story. Anything else is delusion. If I even want to show up in the room, I have to accept that I've been given a certain role, whether I like it or not. Yeah, I would say terrible things were done to you. Isn't that a Um, bit of an exaggeration? Well, if you think murder is not a terrible thing, then I I would say you were spiritually murdered or as best as they could. Your your body kept getting back up, and that was the most frustrating thing to them. But I think what was happening there was they were trying to kill you, and they did pretty good, but they, you know, didn't succeed. I can jump on the rhetoric in terms of um, character assassination. That's what it felt like. It felt like that they were snipers all the time trying to destroy your reputation so that you... It's like, I don't know, um, you know in Pac-Man when you get the power pill and you bite the ghost and the little eyes go back and needs yeah. a body to come back in? It felt like they kept doing that yeah. to me. I was the ghost in the Brethren machine, that they'd bite you. And once they bit you, you, now you can't hold your head up. You can't have the conversation. You, you, if you're in the room, you're only technically in the room. No one's going to listen to you. If you talk, they'll pretend you didn't talk or or not look at you. In the same way that in 2015, when I went to the Montreal Bible Conference, a whole lot of people were delighted that their reality had a novelty in it, that I wasn't supposed to be there. And they responded, Russell Brand talks about the delight of being in grade school. And there's a dog in the playground. There's not supposed to be a dog in the playground. There's a dog running around the playground. Class stops. Everyone's looking at the windows, even if it's not recess time. Everyone's looking at the window because there's a dog in the playground. And some people, that was the thing. Like me, I, I was like Salman Rushdie or Charles Manson or some gaudy figure pardoning the pun that wasn't supposed to be there. And that was like really interesting. And they kind of wanted interest. A whole lot of the local people, though, it was the opposite. Um, it was like I wasn't there because I wasn't supposed to be there. So I was only technically there. So the way they acted in the room, a lot of the locals was to act as if I wasn't there because I wasn't really there as far as they were concerned. I, I made it a point of going out a couple to a number of the, uh, the reading meetings. Mm-hmm. And since I know I know all the, all of the unwritten laws of of the brothers, I know that uh, the reading meeting is not a um, sanctioned meeting. They can maybe um, frown on having women speak in it, but they can't stop it. They they no. can't stop outsiders from speaking. And it, it, it's a Bible study, right? It's not yes. a open meeting, you know, or and it's not a a, a breaking of bread. So, I, uh, I would I would scare Bethany half to death because she'd be sitting there and suddenly I would say something. She'd be like, you can't, you know, feel this feeling of you can't do that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I would say things. I, I wasn't in a, I didn't do it in a spirit where I was trying to, you know, like, oh, you guys aren't thinking about this. I mean, they only in a, only approach the things that you can both agree on. And they didn't play it like around then, here, like around here long before I was kicked out on the occasions when I said something in meeting, mostly they just pretended that no one had spoken if they didn't like it. And they didn't do that to you because it was too, there were bonds. Like you actually had human connections. And I mean, around here, we're related to each other and intermarried and we grew up together and all the small business owners were very connected, yet there's not the affection. There's not like, if, if love and relationship is supposed to have anything to do with Jesus or Christianity, we didn't have that part covered around here. So I think that's what made it possible for them to behave the way they did around here is 
two literal brothers, people who were brothers that weren't even very far apart in age, who lived side by side. Suddenly, they'd go to a different street address Sunday morning, and the kids would stop playing with each other, and they would stop honoring birthdays and and celebrations with each other. They would just act as if they weren't related anymore. And that leads me to believe that the initial bond was never really formed. Otherwise, it would have hurt to break it. It was so easy to break it that kind of think maybe it didn't exist very much to begin with. So Michael's first answer is to ignore their story entirely and act like he expects them to see things his way. This works surprisingly well. Full marks for the charm, novelty, warmth, surprise, and strength of personality that makes that work for him. Michael's other answer, when asked how he managed to live peacefully and naturally, day in and day out, working so closely with in-laws and brethren folks who were living a story in which he has judged them as the wrong Christian group but was wrong about that, is that he doesn't know how he lived that way. He just did it. I think warmth, charm, and humor cut through a lot of social problems. Know how I was able to do it, <laughs> but I was able to not feel guilty about my position because I didn't. I felt, but I also didn't hate them. It's weird for me. It comes out of the idea that you don't hurt another person's conscience if they think something is wrong. Well, then you just avoid doing it. So, like my uh, father-in-law, I've never smoked a, a pipe around him and, and or or his, you know, any of her family. So when I we go to visit, I don't. I don't smoke. I do. I still smoke, but I don't do it in front of them. If you had not gone to meeting that with them, if you not put in the time, it probably would have been harder. It would have, but I think it, it was Bethany's family and the her. It was her birth culture. The 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 meeting there is everybody that she grew up with and knew. Uh, you grew up in the 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 very worst area in in the world, most likely. <laughs> well, there's. I've definitely talked to people who had a lot worse than me and were from worse places and worse groups. That was part one of this episode. Part two, with a few longer-form interviews, and the song itself is coming up next. Because you've listened patiently this far, I'd hate to let you go this episode with none of the music at all. So what I've done is put the bed track to the song here for you to hear, just the voice and guitar I did before adding anything else. I sang to a click track, but I've muted that so you don't have to listen to it here. In the end... I ended up simply using the rough guitar and vocals as the final guitar and vocals, laying some things on top of them, as you'll hear in the next episode. As you'll be able to discern, the song was definitely a young man expressing frustration with the older folks, the power folks in our church culture, for apparently prizing weakness and passivity rather than health and strength, for being continual impediments to life and living. One, two, one, two, three, four... Great immovables Once men now turn to rocks That a kid could climb up If he brought rope And his nice red climbing socks But he would meet A person halfway up there Leaning on a crutch A kindly, simple, crippled man Who thinks we think too much Beware the cripple story is a simple one but one that's seldom told he's feeble and he's senile but he isn't very old he broke his legs while climbing up these self-same very rocks 
Versed only in fantasy by a friend in his red socks with a cripple. Standing in your way. He ground up all his strengths and he put them in a pot. Then he boiled them and reboiled them till he was happy in what he got. Was a tarry grayish poison of a very nasty kind. Now he spoons it out to everyone as tonic for the mind. Beware the cripple. Standing in your way. Calling all his friends. Wooden warriors on wooden crutches, glass bottles full of goo, with plastic spoons to cram in your mouth. Kid, that stuff will kill you. Beware the gripple. Never stop to talk to him, cause he won't rest till you've had your fill. Of his crock and cock did cure all Then he'll kick you down the hill He will toss you down a crutch to use Unless you can get past The one thing that could save you Is he can't run very fast Beware the cripple Standing in your way Calling all his friends Coming after you With the cripple